0: To this is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Philadelphia's own Vulture Raid. The track, Ruin My Life. This is a self-released, self-titled EP, Ruin My Life. Oscar, I don't understand where this kid gets it from. Absolutely fantastic, incredible, fucking talent, songwriting, stage charisma. He was in a band called Stolen Wheelchairs. And uh, the wheels fell off those wheelchairs and it got back up after a little bit. And this is the new track. This is a new band, and I will be mind-blown if this fucking band doesn't go places. But I can say the first time you can uh, definitely say they're going to be going places is going to be opening up for Scal in late September at the Underground Arts in Philadelphia, which is way down the line. And there are so many fucking shows way down the line here in Philly. feel like we have so many shows, it's just absolutely retarded. Um, But let's go with the shows that are upcoming soon, which is um, June 2nd. There's actually two separate shows, which is pretty fucking badass. If you want to bang your fucking head off, either fucking show will do. Um, Bob Wilson, the king of the fucking Philadelphia hardcore scene right now, this guy, he just keeps going and going with these shows. And what I really like about what Bob does is it's not just the band's that you read about on those uh, fancy little publicity stunt, zine.com things. These are the bands in the trenches, doing it with no PR, doing it with no manager, no booking agent. The raw, the real, the wild shit. And I mean, you fucking, you want to talk about, that's the fucking bands right there. Brain Tourniquet Uh, is <laughs> a fucking crazy name for a band. Chilling Pace, uh, that's a band from Virginia, I believe. Um and again, this is at the Philadelphia Mocha. I'm pulling it up all now. Yeah, Sinister Feeling and I believe Scarab's on this as well. That's a raw wild fucking show to be at. That's Friday, June second, Philomocha. Fifteen bucks in Bob's hand will get you into the show. A couple blocks away at Underground Arts. Sangwasugabog, the death metal band whose logo looks like a bush. Of ivory leaves, jarhead fertilizer stabbed. I guess those guys are going from one festival across to another, so they did a short run. And we just added Weeping from New Jersey. Hard, aggressive, blast the whole nine yards. Sick bam, we're at it opening. So that's Friday, June 2nd. And um, let's go real quick. Uh, The following Friday, as Drain completely sold out. So, uh, Uh, You can try to show up at the door. Maybe they'll let you in. Who knows? It's hard. Here's another wild Bob one. Warren Apex Predator, Killing Me, and Nomad. Uh, Warren has one of the coolest vocals in hardcore. Wilkes Bar, fast, aggressive, Apex Predator. I just watched a video that Sonny had on this dude. And the shit that he was putting into his mouth before he was in play is absolutely astonishing. And um, Killing Me, the young Delaware heads continuing to blossom and grow into being a powerhouse locally and hopefully beyond as they've done some little weekends here and there and um i just saw a thing on x nomad x some idiots saying some shit about somebody in their t-shirt which is typical for the young hardcore scene um june 14th omirta mood ring gates to hell and moral code that's the mocha as well make sure you check that out and then uh, i'll drop one more because we have so many fucking shows the incendiary show is almost sold out that is June 23rd, Incendiary, Volcano, which the dude from Sansugabog sings in, uh, Simulacra, Dirty Dom, X, guys haven't played in a little bit, so it'd be cool to see them back. And um, this little band called Scarab, which people seem to like these days. Absolutely fucking fantastic. And uh, the following night, we finally actually got the whole thing together, the Kev One Bulldoze Benefit. Kevin Sia passed away in early fall last year. Just on the uh, end of the announcements between FYA and Keystone Jam. And with all the previous engagements, Bulldoze didn't want to take away from the other. So we just announced this. Bulldoze, All Shall Suffer, Shout Realm, Rome, Bayway from New Jersey. You got to check these guys out. Uh, hard fucking band. One by one. Hard in a different way. Aggressive, sing-alongs. Definitely fits in the the vein of shit, but not in a complete modern day beat, beat down kind of way. Um, shout out from Philadelphia, love them, dude. Check out their track, Bad John. We played them on a couple episodes, I think, or at least one episode before. It's gonna be fucking cool. The money goes to Kevin's family, and I like doing benefit shows. It sucks that we have to do them, but I I always like doing them. Now, again. Um, uh, this is hardcore is August four, five, and six. August fourth is completely sold out. August fifth, Saturday, Gorilla Biscuits. You're crazy. You're not going. Um, I could I could read the whole list of bands, but all you got to do is go to This Is Hardcore Fest, and the lineup's right on the fucking page. Sunday, August sixth, Bane, and now we added on top of Bane, it goes Bane, Prayer for Cleansing, and then Beyond Repair, which is all the guys from Throwdown from the original lineups. They're called Beyond Repair because Dave, the guitar player of Throwdown, went on to continue the band, and he owns a name and doesn't want to see people get confused as for two bands working under Throwdown. So this is Beyond Repair, which is the first LP which came out on Indecision Records. Dave Mandel, a guy I can't wait to have on the podcast, he actually, his Indecision um, Record celebration is the week before this or the show sold out, it's absolutely a testament to dave and the shit that he's done with hardcore and because the guys in throwdown love dave they showed up and did that and i said hey why don't you come do that over here the next weekend we've been friends for a long time met each other on the first dysphoria tour which was the first throwdown tour and that shit was fucking 24 years ago and i'm glad that i get to see my friends ripping some of the old tracks that the kids have been dying to see for many years the thing I have to say about tonight's guest is that he is a part of a um a large hardcore family. Not in that we're all family but legitimately bro- blood brothers. Previously I've had Kevin, his brother, who is the was the booker, mastermind behind the very celebrated Castle Heights and he was actually in the first 10 episodes I did. We had a great conversation. If you never checked it out, go all the way back. I want to say it's like episode six or seven. Fucking fantastic. He has another brother, Mike Scadano, who we just had on to talk about confusion and the era of Brooklyn, which created what we talk about, deathcore. And he has another brother, which I'm going to have on the show, Mr. Mark, who is in shutdown. Um, John Scadano has his own legacy, has played in bands, And just been there, not only as a fly on the wall, but just being someone present in hardcore. And throughout the years, I I met him because, you know, John's out there. John's doing the thing. And I think that as you hear his story progress, you're going to find shit that's kind of put two and two together. And just a different perspective on the end of the 80s, into the 90s, even into the 2000s in hardcore and things going on. And, I, and the more I find people from those specific time frames, which is like, you know, really near to dear to me, I love different perspectives because everybody in the scene had a different take on it. And that's what you're getting from my friend John Scadano. And I hope you enjoy this one. I had a fucking blast. Lots of cool little trivia, lots of just interesting perspectives from a guy who was involved in hardcore through a great family and has been involved for a very long time. So let's fucking go. Welcome to the show, the third Scudato brother. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> John Scudato is a member of a, a illustrious New York hardcore family, and I know you've been on some podcasts, and you have a podcast of your own, but I really was excited to have you on the show and talk about everything that you did with the family and then how you influenced all these guys and then the cool music that you guys uh, that you were involved with from the early 90s into to the 2000s so john thank you for coming on the show man
1: so thank you so you just need what you need like my mom and mark and i think we're good right i think that yeah basically good. okay that's, that's point. in that order and that <laughs> yeah. you know my, mom, my mom's name is joan you should have her on It should be a great that would be a great conversation Oh, that would be fucking awesome I'm sure actually. it would be actually She's like you know I didn't really like the music that much I'm not going to lie to you I didn't like it that much I'm going to be honest with you That's exactly what she would say <laughs> Well now
0: that we're on to uh, the third time For some of the people listening to this uh, You are obviously have some amazing brothers And a great part of uh, New York hardcore history And I'd love to get your perspective On what growing up in the Scadato house was like the music and like, what was your personal path to the music and how you ended up where you're at now?
1: So I'm the third uh, of five. So I have an older brother that a lot of people have met, but he's the only one, my brother, Joe, he's the only one that never did a band or anything like that. But many people in the scene have met him for like decades, like, like crazy. And then it was Kevin, of course, which, you know, you know, and then myself and then Mike and then Mark. So, uh, you know, Kevin being the booker of Castle Heights, And Mike being in bands like uh, Confusion and Inhuman and The Last Stand. And of course, Mark being from Shutdown. Uh, Growing up in our house in Brooklyn in like the 70s and the 80s, it was very sort of chaotic. It was always like um, noisy, you know, always very busy our father uh, worked two jobs he was like an office guy and then he was in the army on the weekends he was in the reserve and when he was home he did like three things he watched mets baseball um he listened to elvis presley and um you know he smoked cigarettes like this was like his whole thing like sometimes in that order it was a big music house like at night my dad would put like the the hi-fi stereo on and put on mostly elvis But he would listen to like uh, the Rolling Stones, Credence, Buddy Holly. And then uh, I vaguely remember him putting on like popular music, like when I was a small kid. Um, But mostly it was it was rock and roll, like rock and roll was the defining thing in his life. Like you could tell that changed his life. He was there for the advent of rock and roll. You know, he was born like in the middle, like right at the end of World War Two and he experienced things like sock hops and dances and seeing like crooners and he just loved rock and roll. Like he just loved it. You know, it was such a big part of his life. And as a kid, you know, you don't really, you don't want to hear his music. You know what I mean? you want to hear your music? (laughs) Like he's putting on like Buddy Holly and like you want to listen to like Ozzy Osbourne. Like that's what it was kind of like. I was a small kid really into metal and um i liked ma- like maiden and priest and sabbath
0: what was your what was your interest into that like did, was there like kids in school was that just kind of like what was popping up or like wh- who put you onto that
1: there were older metalhead kids where we grew up in cheapshead bay uh it was mostly like a very italian irish you know area um and the the kids that stood out the most to me were the metalheads right because everybody this is like the late 70s early 80s you saw like it was a very big guido i know you know what that means obviously yeah but a lot of people don't i mean we're from the northeast very like d- disco-y guido gold chain hair slick back you know that vibe driving like a trans am but then you would occasionally see joe you'd see like these dudes with the fucking old-school metal hair walking yeah. walking by with a radio blasting fucking ozzy blasting priest blasting acdc and there was something about those dudes that even though it was culturally like uh, almost like a subculture right because it was such a heavy guido disco area there was something cooler about them like they just seemed like they didn't they seemed really like badass and rebellious like kind of like you know like a 50s greaser you know, yeah. would be, you know, what I mean, it really was I, for people that don't like know what that was like growing up in like a suburban area decades before the Internet. If you were different in any way, you know, you were just completely ostracized, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, it's something we've all experienced through hardcore. But the metal heads just seemed really cool to me and I wasn't allowed to grow my hair. So I grew like a little rat tail in the back. You know what I mean? And um, I would have to tuck it in at Catholic school and like junior, like what's considered junior high, like seventh, eighth grade. Yeah. And I, there was a show, um, uh, because Philly was such a big, you know, metal area too for radio, rock radio. There was a show on WNEW, a famous classic rock station. It was called Metal Shop. It was a syndicated radio show. They would play metal from like 11 to 12 on like a Friday or a Saturday night or something like that
0: are you dubbing those i would tape it yeah i would tape. yeah
1: and they i heard loudness i heard exciter um anthrax twisted sister this is like 83 84 something like that and then i just decided i'm going to be like a metalhead now like i'm going to be a metalhead guy and i had the denim jacket and the the patches and it just it seemed like the the i just didn't want to be like the way everybody else was you know and um it was just there was a cool factor to it because it was so uncool. Um, metal was the least cool thing you could have liked in 1982, 83 in that part of Brooklyn, man. It's the least. Uh, yeah, you
0: were you were a sore thumb if you if you were out there right doing that. Oh,
1: absolutely, yeah. And I had my little Guido mustache, like you know, if there's something in the air or the water back then that everybody 11 and 12 had a mustache, like I don't know what the fuck it was. <laughs> like it was crazy. Like everybody, like I had like a fucking beefsteak Charlie's mustache growing in. And you know, uh, my parents just was so preoccupied with a lot of moving parts. Children, I think Mark was probably like a baby. Mike was a few years younger than me. I had older brothers going to high school. I just loved metal. Like I just something about metal, and just the the, the just being different. And then in '85, uh, at that point I had a crew of metalhead friends. That were close to my age i was allowed to go see iron maiden and queens at radio city for the um uh the big tour that the would become live after death uh the power slave tour and that was my very first concert experience was queens reich off of the warning and iron maiden at radio city
0: and Holy shit! yeah
1: incredible it was were they
0: doing the big backdrop production yeah. that by that point? Oh, yeah. Jesus. Yeah, that's that was so cool. Yeah.
1: And then, Queen, now here's a funny thing about that tour. The opening act nationally was uh, Twisted Sister, who were on yeah, Stay, that was their, Stay Hungry. That was their
0: beginnings. Yeah. That's that was, fucking awesome.
1: But Twisted Sister was so big in New York and in that part of the country that they opted to not play because they were too big to open for anybody. So Queensryche, who I already liked because I bought their album at a record store called Zigzag. That a lot of people from you know know from New York in uh, in Brooklyn, they would do in-store metal appearances. And I bought the Warning, uh, which was their first full-length album, Um, And it was they had the backdrop of the Warning, and Jeff Tate is like dropping these crazy notes. I'm like in eighth grade, like oh my god, it was the coolest shit ever. And Maiden doing that full spectacle, you know, I'm talking like when they open up with. Um, Ace is high with the with the Winston Churchill intro like we shall fight in the air we shall fight in the sea this is I'm I'm in 8th grade dude like and I'm yep. I'm probably one of the youngest people there it's all older scary metalheads there all the girls look like Lita Ford you know all the dudes look like they're in poison and the crowd is bedlam I think they sold out two or three nights there maiden but that was that was it I was like oh my god I need to sing in a band like that was just I have to sing in a band
0: no, that's exactly my upbringing. Just a couple years later, literally just going to large rock concerts with my mother, who was obsessed with metal at the time. Oh god! <laughs> and, and and literally just being and thinking and all the things you were saying. Only I was encapsulated first from like the Aussie records that would sit on the floor, mm. and then when really when I started actually going to like the big concerts. Obviously, she was taking me stuff like ACDC dc and Kiss when they would come through. Oh Jesus! And it was the same feeling. It was like, Holy fuck, there's all these like wild people. And I mean back then everybody chain smoked in there. Yes. It was everyone's yeah. everyone every girl's lifting her shirts so up. Mm-hmm. Like, My mom didn't give a fuck. She's like, This is fucking great. Yeah. And I would go and I was like second or third grade going into school, just like I just saw kiss. This is great. Like wow. The kids and um, we and it was like a completely we're talking about like this is like the late eighties. Mm-hmm. So everyone's looking at me like, My parents don't listen to this. You know? Yeah. Like, we Um, now I know that you would obviously go on to sing the things. Did you start thinking about singing at this point? Like, did you make any inroads to singing once you kind of had this feeling from the show?
1: Yeah, we had a cover band, uh, a guy you might know, his his name is Eric Morgan. He's, uh, he's, he was in a band called First Order, um, years later but from when we were children, but he also was in Lament. He's also in a yeah. band with uh, Sal, a pale horse named Death Sal from type. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah, Eric Morgan. He was a, a bass player. I've known him since I he's a little older than me, but I was in a little BS band with him in grade school. And he was an amazing bass player back then. He introduced me to Metallica during Kill 'em all. He made me buy jump in the fire of uh, the EP. And um I bought Hell. Did you ever hear Hell Comes to Your House? It was that EP from like exciter on it and all these, I think, loudness. It was great.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a, it was like a, almost like a promo thing for that whole group of bands. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I remember getting that. Um, I was in a band with him and another guy played drums and this guy, older guy, Tony, he's older. He's probably 14, 15 at the time, but he looked like 37. Um, and we just did maiden covers, Sabbath covers, Ozzy covers, maiden covers, Sabbath and priest. And we would just, we didn't know how to make multiple tapes at once. So we would all have to do, we'd have to do the whole thing like four times and everybody got oh, to take a cassette and I'm in eighth grade, you know, I'm in eighth grade and I'm already doing like plays in school. I was very young. I was like cultivating, doing like uh, performing arts. So I was already singing in school stuff and uh, acting. That was like going to be my path. I was in, I think sixth grade and a nun I went to catholic school and a nun asked me what i wanted to be when i grew up and i said oh i want to be like an astronaut or like a fireman or i want to go in the air force and then she said you know what would be a good job a uh, good job for you john a game show host because <laughs> i was impersonating uh bill murray a lot at school like when he was doing like the the lounge singer Like um, this is from the very, this is like the seventies at that point, but it was on, you know, they were, we were seeing them in reruns and I was impersonating like a game, like Phil Donahue and all this other stuff, stuff I would end up doing a lot in high school. And I just, I wanted to sing more than I wanted to act, but I was not, I was a better actor and like comedian than I was a singer. But there wasn't cool to be an actor in like eighth grade. (laughs) It was a little sketch, actually. So the singing was like the thing for me. And and I knew I was going to do it. I just didn't know how I was going to get there. I thought I was going to end up in metal bands, but all the metal heads were too old. And all the people that I were playing with were so much better at what they were doing. They were getting in like real bands. And I was just like this kid with a rat tail, you know, who liked rat. You, you know like who who can't stop making jokes so uh this was around like eighth grade my parents were going to put me in a military school for a high school called LaSalle academy and there was a program in my local high school which was not a great school at the time it was pretty like chaotic with a lot of fights and shit. it was sheepshead bay high school and um i they said they're going to start a performing arts program for voice and drama and i auditioned to get in and I got in. And at the time, I had also auditioned for, um, I don't know if you're familiar with LaGuardia, the fame school. That's the- No, I know what fame. Yeah, I yeah. remember
0: fame, the TV show yeah. and all that. The real yeah. school. Joe Affi went there.
1: Um, oh, shit. Sergio Mayer went there. Uh, Sammy from Gorilla Biscuits and youth. Yeah, uh, I know Sammy went there. Yeah, Joe well. went there with the high school with all those guys and some other guys from the hardcore scene. Uh, Jessica Pimentel went there. You know, she's yep. a little younger than, than me. I didn't get in. I didn't get into LaGuardia. So I chose, instead of going to this military school. Uh, like uh, Catholic Military Day School in, in the, in Canal Street, I went to Sheepshead High School. And I w- took my little metalhead ass into that school, which was pretty, it was a pretty wild school. And there was older metalheads there. But um, I happened to see in my hallway one day, uh, a dude, I might have been the next year or, or the year after that, um, t- uh, one of the Warzone guys went there, Jay from, War. Jay from OG Warzone, Jay and Paul. Went, yeah, 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 he went to my high school. Um, I didn't know him, right? He was a little older than me. Uh, it's funny now because I think he has like crazy braids or like dreads or something now. But I remember I would see years later I would see those guys walking around, like that guy walking around like a skinhead, like walking around. Fuck, I was like, wow, it's like, holy shit, never saw a skinhead before.
0: Like, you know, well, Tom, what, what, what was this? What year was this about? Like, I, I, I want to say it was eighty-six. That's so fucking cool. Yeah, that's actually that's kind of where I figure that a lot of the 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 borough Queens everywhere else besides the LES really starts kind of getting their in inroads towards New York hardcore and the various different conversations I had like 86, 87. There's so many different people that you're in high school and starting to transform into hardcore. So that makes sense that you start seeing dudes go from one thing and the next, you know, boom, skinhead. Yeah. He was, you know? he
1: was walking. He was a full on skin, like flight jacket, the, 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 the boots, the whole nine, and I, at that point, I was already I I was a little bit more Guido ish. My friends started going to my high school, so I. I but I was really immersed in like theater and, and voice. Um, but uh, when you
0: when you go into that from your background of just kind of like just having like a working class family, were you nervous? Did you have any, or do you naturally feel? I feel like half of it is talent, and half of it is. Like the comfort to actually go beyond just being like, "Hey, I'm John." Because you got to be an actor, you got to sing. Like, how did you walk into that, and how did you like gravitate to the point where you were comfortable as you know you're in high school, which is like the most awkward
1: period of <laughs> yeah. growing up. It still is. Yeah, I um, I I think you know the honest to be honest with you, um, there was so few people trying to do it that just somebody like you would just get in a band by proxy, dude. Like. Like, you, the whole criteria was, you know, oh, can he sing? Kind of. Okay, he's in the band. Uh, can he play guitar? Well, he has an amp. Oh, he has an amp? He's in the band. Like, that's that was the criteria. I mean, we're children. You, you know what I mean? So, But my confidence really came from just being, like, very constantly very entertaining. You know, a middle child, a real middle child acting like a middle child, you know? um at a time where you know that wasn't even like probably a phrase at that point but i i always had a lot of confidence because i knew if i just could make people like laugh and shit everything would be cool like even if somebody doesn't like you if they laugh then they kind of do like you you know what i mean so I, that was my thing i would impersonate like eddie murphy in, in the schoolyard from saturday night live or like billy crystal and so but when it came to singing i had seen so much elvis bro like there was just, I mean, just so much Elvis at that point in my life. I just associated with it like to be the front man was the thing, like to be this sc- crooner, front man type person. And I was just, I had a lot of confidence. I didn't think I had any ability really. I had some, but it was just more confidence than ability.
0: I think it's interesting. Your father was uh, like interested in Elvis. He'd haven't brought Sinatra up. I always feel, mm. I always attached North Jersey and New York to Sinatra. Never, never but heard Elvis-
1: Sinatra in my house. Interesting. Never. He fucking... was like a weird. My dad was like one of these. He was like a rock guy. Like you know, he was. He grew up in a very Italian forward sort of house. Everybody spoke Italian. The old Italians yeah. came over. But he married an Irish girl he met in high school. That's how it works. Like you know, what I'm saying like it, like it works. wasn't. He was so like what they call menagon. Like he was. Yeah. All my, the, you, you know, every member of my family. Nobody has an Italian name. Everybody's got very yeah. waspy, like Irish kind of names. You know, um, it was just. I think his father. When he came back from my grandpa, when he came back from World War Two, he felt very American because he was the first one born in the country, like, you know, from his his parents. And he felt like, you know, my dad, I think, wasn't even speaking English when he came back from World War Two, And he sort of made he wanted this to be like an American family. And I think my dad rock and roll, I think, made my dad feel like less like descendant of immigrants and more like a Gre- my dad was a greaser. My, my dad was a fucking greaser, dude. Like That's You know, so cool, I mean, man. how fucking, cool, how <laughs> fucking the- cool is that? man?
0: Like think about it, like uh, aesthetically, as you as we all grow and that culture gets further, further into the past, you, you look at movies now and you're like, "What was the bad?" It's like the Greasers were like seen as like the real bad motherfuckers, okay. like oh, they're the bad. Those are the bad guys, and really all they did was just slick their hair, smoke cigarettes, yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's just like. Which is, like, so fucking, like, by today's standards, you're like, that doesn't seem too bad. You know what <laughs> well, you know a lot stuff. of
1: them would do, Joe? Like, I don't remember if this is from my dad or I read this in a book. They weren't, a lot of them were sons of immigrants, right? And, and daughters of immigrants. So they weren't really allowed um, to, like, be that. They would bring, like, they would bring, like, the combs and the grease and shit out and the outfits out. And then they would change, like, in the street.
0: Oh. And they would, shit. yeah, they
1: would use, like, car mirrors to, to put the shit, whatever the fuck they were putting in their hair at the time. Because you know you weren't allowed to walk around the house like that, especially if you were the son. My dad was the the the, the son. He was the second generation. But you certainly no no immigrant is going to let their kid walk around like that in the house. Like yeah, crazy? no fucking way. Uh, 1954, 53, 55, no way. So they had like separate lives. Like you know they had like just to go listen to like fucking Buddy Holly at a dance. You had to fucking live a par like a power, like a, a secret life. That's how repressive that fucking culture was.
0: Jesus. Now as you're in high school, are you, are you doing things like going home? And I, cause I, 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 went to a version of that in the second school I went to for high school. We're at a pick and it was like, I'm not going over business. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the wood shop stuff anymore. So I didn't do that. And I went to like a, it was called a champ and mm-hmm where it was like for arts and different things. And the only thing that I'm doing was dancing behind Montel Jordan. Oh God. When he came to our high school uh-huh. and they taught us like a five step move dance, like a line dance oh, for when he showed up. That was like, is he a, is like, he a he had... Philly guy? No, he was just the biggest. Oh, okay. Biggest. I was going to say, I don't. this is how we do. And like, so we had to get on stage and do the gimmick with Montel so like Jordan. The... Yeah. Oh, like my, the... God.
1: <laughs> oh but, um... my God. Oh my God.
0: But because I had long hair and because I really didn't really vibe with the rest of everything going on, I got got pulled into that kind of world. But we were doing – like they were going over stuff like even as far back as like Othello, Shakespeare. Yeah. Were you guys doing stuff like that yeah. or were you guys doing more modern stuff? Well, in I,
1: was in a the- I was in a professional theater company in 10th grade. So I was in a company with um, a kid from The Cosby Show, a girl from the Big Dudley Moore movie, girls from LaGuardia. And I ended up performing at the Friars Club. I sang at the the Friars Club with um, uh, Colleen Dewhurst. Um, Who's the woman from? uh, um, uh, Len Carey He's a big Broadway actor. He passed away a bunch of years ago. Uh, The woman from Saturday Night Fever, uh, the mother from The Exorcist, I think. I was in a company called the Baldwin Theater Company. I had to take the subway from Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, which is the tail ass end of Brooklyn all the way to the Upper East Side at like 15 and 86. So I was in this professional theater company. Every Saturday I would go and I would be there all day. Um, I auditioned with like 600 kids and they took like 30 or 40. And I got in and I couldn't believe I got in. I still don't even know how I got in because my voice was pretty like bullshit. But But my improv got me in and like my theater and all that other stuff. So I was doing scene study with that. And that was, and then I was in core like um, theater arts classes during the day mostly, and uh, it was it was it was insane. I mean, I was my parents were really cool about it, which is a rare thing for me to say. But they they wouldn't let me take the subway home when I had to stay till like midnight sometimes to work on like theater stuff, and my father would send a cab from all the way from Sheep'shead Bay, Brooklyn, to the Upper East Side of Manhattan um, to take me home. And my parents had like no fucking money, like they had nothing. And it would cost like 30 something dollars. And I just remember being like, I can't believe my father just spent $30 to send me home. Now, he could have just drove and fucking picked me up, right? But, yeah, you know, um, he had a car. But I think in his head, it was kind of like, well, I don't want to fucking spend two hours going to the city and coming back. I'll just spend the money. So I was very preoccupied with that. And, you know, that was sort of like 15, 16, and that hardcore was not quite there yet. But, um, you know, I liked a lot of uh, like uh, metal at the time, even though I presented very like Guido for my friends and uh, my girlfriend and all that other shit. But I was listening to like Suicidal Tendencies and uh, stuff like that. But hardcore would come about a year or so later uh, through Mike through my brother mike of all places who was already skating in bones brigade videos at 15 14 uh 14 and uh i found a tape that he left in it we used to have this little bullshit room where we would call like a tower room it was like we put all of our toys and weights in there and uh we would like fuck around in there and listen to music and mike had a mixtape of like token entry this is 88 by the time i got the tape but he had already been around listening to this it was bad brains like token entry war zone rest in pieces gorilla biscuits raw deal demo and it was a two-sided tape you know and i just would put it on and i it was like the summer of 88 and i just got really into it sort of very like i i i think raw deal was the first thing um uh, the Raw Deal Demo. What's the first song on the Road Deal Demo? Uh, I just remember hearing like, um, can't you read the writing on the wall? Oh, uh, don't it's- try to touch. Tell- no. Yeah. What's the name of this? I can't, I'm drawing a blank, but I just remember. It's
0: on the same. The- as soon as
1: you said it, I'm going,
0: I literally have the record. Yeah, I was just going to say. I have the record on the wall behind me. It's the
1: first song on the Raw Deal Demo. And by the way, this is probably a 30th generation tape. Right. This is like not, this is not a, this is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. But I just remember hearing, and then a new release. And I was like, oh, wow. Wall of hate. Wall of hate. Thank you. Great. I
0: literally, in my head, I'm going through it. I'm going, no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. yeah."
1: And then I heard uh, from Beneath the Streets. And I was like, yo. And then I I heard the opening bass intro to High Hopes. And I was like, I have to know more about this. And Mike is already immersed in this. Like he's already gone. This is all of his friends. He's sneaking out to shows. Um, You know, he's, I don't know if he's wearing t shirts at the time. And then in uh, uh, November of 88, Mike's, I'm like, Mike's like, you should come to CBGB's with us. We're going. And he was like, it's raw deal, Gorilla Biscuits, um, straight ahead reunion, beyond and maximum penalty. And this was my first. Now, I just spent like a couple of months listening to everything and watching like videos and stuff like that. And it was all these kids from the suburbs. We all met at the train station. It was the D train in Sheepshead Bay Road. It was a D at the time. The D would, but then it would become the Q train many years later. And i never been, I'd been to the village with my friends like shopping, you know, but I never hung out like in the city. And it was a Sunday and it was a matinee. And I just remember as we got walked up the Bowery, as we got closer and closer and closer, I got very like nervous because I couldn't believe I was going to see Raw Deal in Gorilla Biscuits. Like this is I, I can't believe this. Like this is I've been listening to this for months. I felt like I knew all the songs and everything. And the the when we got to the Bowery, when we got to like um the this, the block of CBGBs, there was so many people and the line was already so long and that was doors weren't for like a little bit. You know, matinee. I think it was like twelve or one. Yeah, so you got to
0: st- you got to stand. In you got to stand
1: in a line, like a queue. Yep, exactly. And yeah. while we're on the li- and now while I'm on the train, I'm being educated by the other hardcore people. They're telling me who the Sunset Skins are. They're telling me who um, the Alleyway Crew is.
0: Yeah, you're getting like a quick yeah, 101, a like, 101, oh, shit, should I be writing this down? Yeah, like, honestly, and by the <laughs> way,
1: this is 88, I have, like, I, I have, like, a champion sweatshirt on, because I was told, don't bring a coat, don't bring my nicest sneakers, be prepared to get hurt. Literally everything that we would say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the subway, and it's like, okay, so there's this group, they're from Brooklyn, they're called the Sunset Skins. Don't make eye contact with them. Whatever you do, don't make. And I'm like, what does that even mean? And they're like, okay. And then there's now there's there's a guy there. His name is Jay Crackdown. He's one of the scariest people in the hardcore scene. If he's there, All right. be careful. Like you know, I don't, you know,
0: you know that Civ and everybody that is from that time period consistently says that Jay Crackdown was by far the hardest masher of that. I yeah. so since you're the – can you verify this? Yeah,
1: I not firsthand, but I was warned. I was warned, and also Tommy Carroll, and they were like, "Fuck." There's multiple people telling you right now, don't, don't say anything. And I'm like, "What would I say?" Like, I don't even know. Like, I don't, like, I'm not gonna say anything. I don't know anybody here, you know. And I'm like a pretty sizable dude, but I'm like, I'm a jabroni. Like, I don't know anything. What's going? I know songs from a third generation tape. That's all I know, and I don't know what I'm doing. And I remember Beyond. We got in there for Beyond. It's like maybe less than a quarter full and beyond were great dude and i just remember i'm up front like a dope not knowing like what to do and then my brother's like moshing everybody's moshing or whatever and i grabbed my brother my brother's like get off me and i was just like <laughs> and you're on, yeah, your own on my now. own now and then uh maximum penalty come on and i just wasn't prepared for like how different that was going to be it was so different i mean they were just complete like jimmy's got a flat top And like, you know, and he's wearing a tank top and he's like completely stands out for a multitude of reasons. Right. In this scene. But he could sing his fucking ass off. And I'm like into it, dude. I was like, holy shit, this is so good. And this is just the first two bands. Right. Like and at that point, I had no shirt on. I hid my champion with my shirt. And I bought a Gorilla Biscuit shirt with the gorilla who's like in the B-Boy stance and the big GB and the pitcher. I bought that shirt for six bucks and I think I bought a maximum penalty shirt and I stuffed it in my champion, which would be stolen. And I wouldn't get any, I would be able to only salvage the GB shirt. But I remember seeing Jorge from Marauder um, moshing to every band. This dude Chucky from the Bronx that a lot of people know Chucky moshing to every band. And I was I was on the lookout for Jay Crackdown and Tommy (laughs) 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 Carroll.
0: Like you're like, I I gotta keep my eye on these. And the twins, and
1: Hector and Edwin. Like that was and minus. Like I I was given a a a list. Like whatever you do, don't don't talk, don't be a wise ass to any of these people. As if I would ever, because I was so enamored. And by the time like uh, a road deal came on, I my back was all cut up. I was like a mess. My jeans are all dirty. And uh, I, they did War Pigs, and I was so excited because I just spent my whole childhood singing War Pigs. And I was like, oh, and I think I got the mic for War Pigs. It's my first show. And then the, yeah, so yeah, the straight-ahead cool. Tommy Carroll comes out, Cock Diesel, in a Todd suit, sweatsuit. <laughs> <laughs> no shirt. The coolest No shirt. Todd suit, skinhead, white Todd suit, Cock Diesel. And every I was like, oh, that's the guy I'm supposed to be afraid of. I get it and straight ahead was so great it was and then of course like gb oh that was a that was the first time gb was allowed back from the youth of today show where they got banned from yeah that was the first the comeback show it was amazing and i just remember taking the train home saying when is the next show and then my brother mike's like oh next week is uh murphy's law uh 24 7 spies super touch and uh i was like we're going <laughs> like you know what I mean? we're going and if if i remember this correctly that show with the Murphy show was where they took the picture for back with a bong where they have the car in front of CB's. And it also was in an episode, an episode an, um, it was in uh, Thrasher. Thrasher did a piece. They were at CB's that day. And this was uh, Murphy's with Todd youth, uh, the late Chuck foul and um, Dougie beans, I guess, playing drums. Amazing. Totally different vibe than the previous week's show, but it was fucking, but super touch. And I was like, Oh my God, I was blown away completely blind, and i just became like that was where i was going to be every sunday like what i thought for the rest of my life
0: so after that it was like full immersion or you were still listening to metal but you the shows are really what captivated you huh
1: yeah it was but it was such a but now that you saw it live it was like oh you need to experience this live like you can't really and now i'm hearing bands like social disorder from brooklyn they're playing lamore we're going to some Lamore shows. There were few and far between, but they were good shows at Lamore. And then the, to me, the apex of that for me would be um, seeing Leeway um, right before uh, uh, their debut album comes out. I had a copy of the demo, the Enforcer demo that we had, like, you know, 80th generation. And I think they did a, um, a NYU, you're familiar with Crucial Chaos? Yes. Yeah. They played the album, they played the first album before it came out, like Profile, like I guess was doing press for it with them, and they played fucking, they played like three or four songs off the album, and we were like, oh my God, this is what, 89, I guess the point to expire came out?
0: yeah this is uh yeah 89. that's uh because because that's right when they did those uh rich shows was a uh, base around that record coming out
1: mm-hmm. yeah and of course i think best wishes was coming out around that like there was a this was a great time to be around so
0: for you being from metal was it interesting to feel because obviously you touched on uh suicidal tendencies earlier but you being in the metal were you surprised to see the metal uh influence bearing weight down on new york Harbor yeah
1: when you saw metalhead it was like a it was like a white buffalo like you know what i mean like,
0: <laughs> but by the way
1: joe affey at that time you know watching maximum penalty joe Affy had hair down to his ass i mean he looked like he was in the almond
0: yeah them old pictures you're like and now you see him now you're like joe where's all that app? yeah
1: joe Affy like 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 dude like mp jimmy williams comes out uh you know a uh, multiracial singer you know uh they had a girl bass player who was not white a girl bass player joe Affy's a metalhead and i'm just like like this like oh like it's not just all skinheads and straight edge kids it's everybody's a part of this fucking shit this is even cooler than i thought you know what i mean so i was blown away by just how different all the bands were you know like even seeing like 24 7 spies they were completely unlike the bands i'd beyond Who were completely unlike Super Touch, you know. I mean, everybody was so different. It was just such a cool vibe, man. It was so great. It was, and it was crowded, bro. It was there was so many people. You couldn't believe all these people were going to fit in this tiny room, you know.
0: No, I think specifically the first six or eight months of hardcore, everything is so raw. Because you're you're not indoctrinated, you know. Yeah. Like, and it, it almost becomes like a cult thing because then you're like, I don't want to miss the next one, you know. And there's still so much to still be immersed into. So then the point is, now every time you see someone, you're looking at a T-shirt. Do I know this band?
1: Yeah, and and it was accessible. Like CB's had the record store right next to CB's. Yeah, Bleaker Bob. Uh, well, the Bleaker Bob's is on Bleecker Street. In the oh, that's right. But this there was CB's <laughs> record. So it was called the Canteen. Oh, that's right. The can't see, see. I, I actually seen pictures. I've never been there. I was, I was thinking about bleaker bobs. When so I, in. you would buy, I bought straight out of Compton in 89 at the <laughs> fucking record. <Rick and laughs> well, because they played it. They played it before matinees because it was like protest music. You know, it was, dude, you got to remember, like there was that whole hangover of the squatter rights from the late eighties into the, you know, that was going on in real time. Tompkins riots. And, you know, this, this, this sea change was happening of like, like poverty. You know in in places like the bowery and the above seabees was a fucking welfare hotel like where homeless drug addicts would yell at you from the windows while you waited online and occasionally they would throw shit out the windows on top of you
0: in hindsight it's so interesting to see it from one lens like through all the pictures in that time period and all the different stories rogers everything that everything that would take place in the les we would now look at from a lens of oh they were getting ready to gentrify this whole fucking Yeah, you, could, you would never know that. I'll tell you that right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, you would never know that at that moment because it was seen as like this is a completely separate landscape then, I mean, I imagine, obviously, Sheepstead Bay. I mean, you guys are, there's water, there's boats, yeah. there's all this different shit <laughs> yeah. out there. So going into, like, a completely, like, Canal Street and all them little fucking Washington back Square
1: Park. I mean, like, yeah. my God. I mean, Washington Square Park was scary. I was so scared. To, I was afraid to go to Tompkins Square Park because I heard
0: – Were you goes. lying to your mom about going or what, no. by then because you went with Mike, you were okay with Yeah, because
1: it was Sunday afternoons. I mean, I, I missed the Hawker record party because it was like father – like it was like a holiday that day. That was the um the Hawker Records, the release of Jay Bird. and. Yeah, um, no for an answer and wrecking crew and I'm forgetting somebody else. It's a long time ago, but that uh, rest in pieces. That was um, that was like a Father's Day or a Mother's Day. I think it was Father. It was one of those. Kind, it was a holiday. It was Easter or something. Like we wouldn't be allowed to go if it was like a holiday. That's what it was. So if it was like, yeah,
0: your family was still pretty busy. yeah
1: yeah like you had to go see your grandparents because it was Easter. You couldn't go. So we would like those were the only times. So that was the one thing I missed in that time period that I wasn't at was that Hawker record release party because um, I loved all those bands and I ended up buying the live version when it came out because I was so pissed I couldn't go but also Lamore had some huge fucking shows at that. I think like even like Jane's Addiction maybe played Lamore at that time and uh, Jesus Yeah there's Christ. a
0: lot of if you if you google and look around for who played Lamore oh my god like there's just it, it's insane Actual the amount of bands that like on the way up come through.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't there for like the Charlotte and the Harlots, which was made in under a fake name, but I was there for Slayer. Um, you know, uh, leeway were like, uh, almost a house band there right around the time, like born to expire transitioned into desperate measures leeway were they were a headliner, but they opened this amazing suicidal tendency show with, I think 24, seven spies and somebody else opened that war zone. It was 25, 24, seven spies, war zone leeway which by the way the whole leeway set is on youtube i just watched it up about a month ago holy on, shit it was Just godlike bro i mean eddie's eddie was nobody was like that dude and i just seen him headline the the super bowl of hardcore three at the old i like get the palladium i guess it was with the old ritz but they, it was the actual the palladium or something i think it was the ritz and uh he they went out at like two in the morning i went home bareback in the winter from that show i had to take the train home with no shirt. Um, that was like one of three times I had to go home shirtless all the way back to the suburbs on the fucking train. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that was the thing. I tell kids that now I'm like, we went to a show. It was like way later, obviously mid nineties. And a friend of mine went from school was like, yo, I'm going, I'm like, you're not going to want to wear that jacket. He like, no, I'll just stash it somewhere. Yeah. And it was Slayer. It was a Slayer show out. And at the end of the night, I'm like, where's your jacket? He's like, dude, I can't find it. Yeah. <laughs> And I kind of felt bad for him. Like, well, we're taking the train home, brother. You're gonna freeze. Yeah, like, that's the way. It I is. had a, ch-
1: I had two champions stolen from CVS. I stuffed it in the wall. There was a broken wall, and everybody would stuff their stuff in there, and uh, that got stolen. I would go there with very, I would, go, I would literally go there anticipating being robbed or attacked in some combat. Like, and it never fucking happened. But I was just, I no wallet, no, I. I brought my birth certificate and like twenty bucks. And like six to get in, a couple bucks for drinks, a couple bucks if Mike needed money, and a cup and some money for a t-shirt. And then I had tokens for the subway. I didn't need there was no Metro Card, so I had two tokens and a twenty. And I was like a king of the universe at like seventeen. I was uh, doing this, Um, you know. And this was like our ritual. And we met so many more people. And then we started befriending a lot of people that we were afraid of which was a big part of that sort of ritual where, you know, you, somebody, and then, you know, and then when you, you knew, if you fell, that people were going to pick you up. You knew if you stage dove, people were going to catch you. Um, And we weren't really meeting the bands. We were meeting fans. Nobody was really like friends with people in bands or anything like that. We were spectators, but it was so cool to be a spectator.
0: Now, I, I think there's just this awesome period of time in hardcore, like all these things you're bringing up. That I don't think every obviously every era is going to have their own, like, oh, is this great thing? But these are the things that keep getting recited in these episodes (laughs) as people because it's, I mean, we've had Eddie on the show, we've had Walter, and and it really is a culmination of some of like, like just fundamental New York hardcore moments. So it's awesome to hear it from your lens. Do you think being from the area that you're from? That you were just able to access these kind of things because you had the balance of being able to go to Lemoore's or go down to the city versus, like, if you lived, say, like in Long Island, your entire perspective would be totally different.
1: Yeah, but, but you know, back then, like, the subway, it was a long, it was an arduous subway trip for a bunch of 15, 16, 17 year olds. I mean, yeah, what was that trip? Like hour and guys? change. was it a couple trains. Yeah, a couple. It, was, oh, it, it could be one to two trains. If it was C B S, it was like you would, we would just get off at uh, the Broadway Lafayette stop, which is the East Village, and then walk you know we never got the train close to cbs because we didn't want to switch because we thought it would take too long but if god forbid like i remember that super bowl of hardcore three and this is like when judge went on second and you know uh born to like the b-way headline is born to expire born to expire but everybody played it was like a million bands on that show i think the iceman were on it it was i can't remember the full lineup but that show ended so late and i just knew we were going to be fucked trying to get home it was an hour and a half. something. it'd take like an hour and change, and then you had to walk home from the subway. It's not like you know the yeah. subway's pulling up to your house. So um, yeah, it was a lot. I, had I lived anywhere else, you're right. I don't. I don't know. I think. I think it, it, we still would have done it. Honestly, I there were kids coming from Trenton to go to CBGBs. I mean, there were kids coming from Philly to go to CBGBs. Well, that's
0: the that's that was the road. Mm-hmm. Like you had to from for us, it was Philly to Trenton on one train. And then it would be the train that you jump on the Trenton that could take you all the way to Grand Central Station, mm. or like for us, we would get we would go to Thursday night. We would always go up to um, what the fuck is it? I can't believe now I'm saying it. Um, the pipeline. Oh, the pipeline. Yeah, yeah. So that was I missed so many Fridays because we would get to the Philadelphia train transfer in Trenton. And have to wait till five a.m. Oh, for the train to come to get us home. Yeah,
1: and yeah, no, and that was it. You were just waiting. It wasn't like you called yeah, we're a like, cab or anything. And,
0: and it, yeah, you literally just sat there and just hoped you end up fucking try to fight some bums. Yeah, like literally, just like oh, this is what the fuck it is. And I think that that part gets lost on people because obviously New York City, although fucking insanely populated, hardcore was so small that people were coming from as far as Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts. I mean, you mentioned like Wrecking and Crew and shit. Like all these, all these bands. In, that were getting on these hardcore labels, it was kind of still, still a very small scene in comparison oh, yeah. to a giant metal scene. So, it, so people had to travel, and everybody had their own kind of like chaos, arduous journey just to get to the show and stand in the line. For and
1: certain people came from very shitty areas and, you know, dressed like a punk or like if you were like even like a skinhead, which everybody thought, you know, this was like nobody really knew what to consider skinheads. People thought there were Nazis at that time, I'm sure. But that wasn't very popular in culture to, you know, it was sort of like a different vibe. Um, you know, people going to fuck with you. I mean, and then, of course, you had the squatters in the Lower East Side, you know, like the art scene punks and. You know uh it was it was it was very i'd say this though it was very young like the oldest people there that weren't bouncers which were like middle-aged you know dad bod guys mostly were t- early 20s so it was like young teens to early 20s in this small space taking over the the area for the day you know just or wherever shows were uh but that's we mostly just went to either Lemoore or seabees there wasn't really nowhere else we were going
0: Oh, so you weren't, you weren't traveling anywhere else? No, not it? really.
1: No, we would travel eventually. But at that point, nobody, you know, we were still very young. And, you know, everybody was either 15, up to 15 to 17 years old at this point. It wasn't until when people started being in their own bands, that's when everything would kind of change.
0: Now... How does this translate into high school and like the rest of your what was normal your normal life pre hardcore? So
1: I had like a theater life, and then I had my my regular friends that were really like getting strung out on like coke at the time, and uh, I was that was not my thing. And I had a girlfriend who is actually my wife now. She was that was has been my wife. Since oh, that's then. fucking awesome. But she's my wife now for almost like uh, nine years. We've been together like ten years. But uh, she was younger than me. So the way it would be was I would go to school during the week. I would work almost every day after school because i had to and i was grateful to at least have my three dollar an hour deli job and then friday would roll around i would hang out with my high school friends with kids i grew up with had nothing to do with the scene or there would be a show maybe at Moore. saturday work all day as soon as i got out of work take a shower go hang out with my high school girlfriend who had to be home at like nine o'clock go hang out with my friends who uh were all doing like eight balls off of like fucking pink floyd albums and uh metallica vinyl records um and then sundays with cbs and that was just it it was just that was it i didn't work sundays my deli was closed it was like that was the regimen of my life i was doing plays and then i had a girlfriend and i hung out with my regular friends and then i had my hardcore friends um that was like my senior year of high school which would be sort of the last year of that because then you know things would change because now band people were starting to get in bands um now that everybody was a little bit older and then everything changed
0: now i, I one of the things I want to bring up because we talked about this on another podcast is the part of like Brooklyn and Queens that you guys are from uh where it was there garages or no garages, no garages. I know there was there was there's this whole theory that I had heard that said like in the part of Queens where like token entry were living and like some of the guys from gorilla biscuits because they had garages mm. the queen scene kind of kind of developed a little bit faster mm. be had constant constant access to be able to practice versus having their like get a
1: rehearsal. No, space. people had people that was basements. I I don't remember anybody basements, Yeah, we okay. had you guys had basements. Yeah, Brooklyn it was okay, basements. Cool. Most of the houses were attached. So, you know, and everything was in the front. So like your garbage is all in the front. You had an alley, but it was usually very yeah. narrow. And uh, you played like st- you know, stickball in the alley. Like you'd play like running bases in the alley or something like that. My backyard was ass tiny. So it was like there was nothing going on back there.
0: Yeah, it was basically four cement blocks. In very the tiny. Like four. Yeah, very We had like a swing that
1: would swing into a brick wall. Like I'm not even talking. <laughs> like it would <laughs> literally swing into a flat brick wall. And then we had a clothesline because we lived on the second floor. So, you know, you'd have to go downstairs and get all the clothes that fell off the clothesline. Like, you know, when Oh shit. We'd have to, yeah, this is that's like the nineteen forties. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: but yeah, but then like 89, 90 would roll around and now people are getting into ba- like starting their own bands. And that's when everything gets different.
0: Well, that's the question I have for you because uh, I imagine this is when you start linking up to do lament, right?
1: Yeah. So what had happened was I had befriended a couple of guys in the band Social Disorder. I know you know who that is. Fuck it. Yeah. A lot of people don't. It's a shame because I really feel like they deserve a, a moment in the sun there. Yeah, they got a they
0: got skipped over in the annals of time, yeah. which is weird because if so many people from the period you're talking about and like specifically in the area you're talking what about. about will give them so much credit and they just kind of get sands kind of right over them. And people just kind of haven't really picked up that like they were integral at that point. Oh,
1: absolutely. And they were, they were OGs of that for Brooklyn. I mean, there was, you had altercation, which I know you know who that is. Yeah. But you know, that was like almost like a small side band compared because everybody in that band, those bands went on to bigger bands. Right. And then, um, then you had the other band that uh, I can't remember the name, but it's an OG band. Um, and you had Andy from Supertouch was from Brooklyn. So that was a, and yeah. Jay and Paul from Warzone, So that gave Brooklyn some legitimacy there, but there wasn't a lot of that going on. You had social disorder, which was from park slope. And, um, you know, they were already like established and they had a demo out and they were playing the more, and that was awesome. But what had happened was I befriended uh, some people in social disorder and they were very tight with maximum penalty. And I had met Joe Affy once at this point um, at Lemoore, but he was like, you know, a, an established person. And we were like, you know, chud, you know, we were like chum compared because he was in maximum penalty <laughs> and we were douchebags from Sheepside Bay. So, um, and that's probably how he would describe it too. So, um, so Jimmy Williams uh, is gone. He's not going to be around for a while. And um a couple of people that I'm friends with, who ended up being producers at MTV for many years, who were, were related to social disorder, were like, uh, "Hey, uh, we're we're going to recommend you to audition for Maximum Penalty," and I was like, "Get the fuck out of here!" Because where the wild things are, Comp had just, I think, come out somewhere in that. Yeah, comp. and that
0: that would have to be it. that had to be right around like eighty. Yeah, 90, to ninety. 90 yeah, 90.
1: and that was it. I mean, I lost my fucking mind. Or it just it was coming out. I mean, that thing is a fucking beast of all, a beast of beasts to me. I mean, everything that just takes me back in a snapshot in time. You know, the opening outburst song and, you know, all the way up to the end of the sitting round at home at the end. It's just, I can, you know, it's just a lifetime. It's a, it's like a lifetime record for me. So, but I didn't know anybody in Max and Penalty. I I knew a couple of dudes in social
0: disorder. I just looked to double check. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Uh, I knew some dudes in social disorder. So there was a studio called Ace London in uh, Marine Park, Brooklyn which I would revisit many years later in life. But at the time that's where social disorder, maximum penalty rehearsed and other metal bands rehearsed. And, uh, I was told I'm going to audition. I think I spoke to Joe on the phone and he's only a year older than me, but I thought he was so much older, but he's, you know, so he's 19 and I'm 18 or he's 20 and I'm 19. I don't even know if he's 20 at the time. And, um, I'm going to do, uh, songs off the demo and I'm going to do the songs off the, where the wild things are, where the wild things are. Um, so um i remember i learned uh acceptance and hate and i learned the two songs off um you know um it, well what's the songs off the comp i it's uh i don't know it's so long oh my god anyway so i learned about, oh max and Maxwell um macular uh, conception oh yeah that was my that was my go-to shit so uh at the time dude from Nikki, who was in social disorder is now in maximum penalty as the second guitarist uh mark Assisto, who was in Breakdown, is now the bass player. And uh, Richie, who was the drummer who used to be in social disorder, it's like half a social disorder is now in maximum penalty. And, uh, you know, and I show up at Ace London and um, I have a beard because I'm doing a play and I had to grow a beard for a play. and It's not like a crazy beard, but it's like I'm like 19 and I have a beard. Like that's weird, right? Uh, And I'm dressed in like, you know, Banana Republic clothes with a beard. It's a very weird vibe. And uh, you know, I do the songs, and I think I'm doing pretty good, and I don't know what's going on. And then I think afterwards, Mark Sisto and Joe are like, "Do you want to do a show with us at the Anthrax opening for the opening for Killing Time?" And I was just what? like, I almost like peed my pants, and I was like, well, you that? yeah, you know, can you do the show? It's That's this so date. Cool. It's like in like six weeks or something like that." And I was like, oh. "So now my first show." In a band that i'm a fan of in hardcore is at the anthrax opening for killing time who are about to put out their Brightside record later on that year and they're hot shit from the comp and they had just changed the name but there was still it was killing time but it was raw deal you know that kind of thing and uh everybody around me now now my stock goes up overnight because all the other dudes i'm hanging out with who even are more established are like holy fucking shit, like you're going to be a maximum penalty this is crazy um and i just remember like it was weird i'm trying to remember the vibe it was like you're in the band but you're not really in the band we're just gonna see how it goes but we really want to do this show because uh you know it's a big show and i was like well fuck yeah let's do it so i don't remember who opened i know it's in the book for the anthrax because i was i i talked to them for the book when it came out and uh my first show we got like six cars of people from brooklyn including my wife who was like 15 at the time 16 she was 15 or 16 i was 19 and um they all drove out to the anthrax it was a friday night and my brother mike was there there was so many people there um and i sh- i remember pulling up to the parking lot of the anthrax and i saw in the parking lot nothing but like bmw's and mercedes and i was just like whoa because none of my friends had cars and like my dad drove like a buick regal or something you know um like a used buick regal and I just walked into that hallway where they had like the the graffiti graphic. I still have pictures of this in the house. And it smelled like um it smelled bad. It smelled like a it smelled like it was like a like a fucking like a fish tank. It just smelled really bad. And I just remember everybody saying, just so you know, there's no bouncers. And I was like, oh, this is gonna be amazing. <laughs> like you know. <laughs> and I'm trying to be cool because like, you know, I'm but now it's like people are showing up and it's like sick of it all is there. And all the alleyway crew people are there. And Tommy Carroll is there like, and I'm like, Holy shit. Holy shit. Um, and it was only three bands on the bill. I don't remember who opened, but we went on second and then it was raw deal, uh, killing time. And I just remember, dude, I'm so excited to do this, but mind you, no one knows. Jimmy is not there. Right. (laughs) Like, yeah nobody knows this so kids there was like hundreds of kids there they're all buying jolt cola they're ready to go holy shit. Yeah. that's what yeah. they awesome. only sold jolt jolt cola they sold two kinds of jolt cola then it's because it was an alcohol-free environment so straight yeah And uh, I was a cigarette smoker because I was very cool. And, um, you know, and people were drinking in the the back in the bands. And uh, I just remember I'm pacing on stage, getting ready to go. And like my brothers, all my friends are there. This is my big thing. And everybody in the crowd is looking up on stage. And as MP is setting up, I start hearing, where's Jimmy? Where's Jimmy? Like people are yelling. And I'm like, oh, they want Jimmy. (laughs) Like You know what I mean? That's like, they don't want me. They want Jimmy Williams. And now I got to do the set and nobody knows like, why is Jimmy Williams not here? You know, and it's not like there's the internet or, you know, cell phones. It's just, he's not here. He's not going to be here for a while, that kind of thing. And, uh, I'm doing those songs and the crowd is just kicking the shit out of me and I'm loving it though. I'm just like, this is great. Uh, couldn't tell you if it was good. Couldn't tell you if it was bad. I just know it was insane. I never experienced anything like that before. You know, and I just remember afterwards, people who weren't talking to me in the back, like people in established bands, were now coming over to talk to me. It's like, you know, that's you were. Yeah, I was elevated from that one time. And this was in the winter of, um, I guess, 90. Yeah. Winter of 90. And then um, I thought everything was cool, but I don't think the band was into me. So like, I was like, oh, I, you know, and then they kind of politely explained to us, Look, we, we, we have some other people we want to audition and this and that. And so I remember I show up to a band practice at Ace London and they're, and Mark Sisto had brought in this fucking, you know, older guy who at the time, he was probably like 28 or something, who's like a friend of his. And Mark wanted this guy to audition. And I was like paying for the band practice too. Oh shit! And I just remember, I was like, Mark. Uh, Mark's like, "Hey, uh, 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 you know, buddy over here is going to do some songs." And he just looked like, like a, like a big burly, you know, drunky, punchy guy. And I'm just like, and I'm like this, like bearded weirdo, you know, head Bay art nerd, you know, who likes, you know, uh, you know, the theater. And I was like, oh, maybe this isn't going to work out. I don't know what happened behind the scenes. I never brought it up. I, I got just got very close with Joe. And then we got asked back again to play the Anthrax again. Only now my beard is gone. I got my confidence up. Uh, I uh, and then that was um, that was with subs. That was when I met Sub Zero. That was in June, and that was the Killing Time record release party at the Anthrax. And now there's like a hundred more people at this show. But the thing was, they said if we're going to do the band, we can't be Maximum Penalty. And I was kind of like, "Womp womp" with that because Maximum Penalty was so well known. And Mark Sisto had written these songs with joaffi listening to like, um, prong and watching the Hellraiser movie. And that's when they changed the name to the band Lament. And then made this huge backdrop and we brought this giant backdrop out and, you know, we were still doing maximum penalty songs, but the presentation now was going to be that the band was going to be called Lament. And that's where I met like Kevin Bulldoze and Lou from Sub-Zero and God knows who else I hung out with at that show. And that's where I felt more established. Um, there's a lot of cool pictures from that show, actually, at the Anthrax. It was amazing. I met um, I met uh, Mark Curry and maybe Jamie Davis at that point. I'm not entirely sure. But it was it might have been that show. Um, it was either that or Unisound. And now it's like, okay, this is Lament, and we're going to do this band. And I think Sisto peaced out not that long after that. And we, Eric Morgan, who I had known from the metal years that Joe Affey went to high school with, is now going to play bass. And that's when we started changing the songs and reworking the songs. And now we're off to the races and we have uh, Crazy Country Club in, in, in uh, Bay Ridge as a, as a club now. And, we're, and now Marauder is happening. Confusion is happening. Patterns is happening. I'm meeting bands like Starkweather. I mean, all these things seem to be happening very fast. Uh,
0: yeah, it seems like because of the – you touch on Unisound. Yeah. That's like a huge part of – our area hardcore and they were in love with exactly what you're talking about yeah. like dude like integrity played their first show back down there like there's all this stuff happening and the guys from philadelphia delaware would end up linking up and becoming friends with you guys and your brother yep. like yeah. it was a whole thing that would come from
1: it. yeah i just remember like there was a sea change like my brother's in a band, he's in confusion. My, my my friend Les, you know, who was like a big Brooklyn person. Fuck yeah. You know, he's in patterns. Uh I, I start befriend Saab through Joaffe and like my brother. And now I'm sitting in Saab's house in Sunset Park listening to what would be Marauder in his back room, like with fucking four giant cabinets and you know, this is the <laughs> OG Marauder. This is like karate Chris and Saab and Skinny Vinny and Eamon and Minus. And like this is happening now right? Like, this is like a thing. And I'm spending less time in the city and more time in Brooklyn because now we're playing the more and we're playing and we put out a seven inch. And this is when we hook up with the Delaware guys, you know, from inner journey and sub zero and meeting a uh, dismay. And it was like, dude, Fuck, yeah, it yeah. was. I mean, it was just insane. I mean, it was just all this stuff was happening, but there was still that city vibe, you know, of going to CBs um cbs would have stop and start shows because of fights and things like that and i'm trying to remember
0: that's what i wanted that's what i kind of wanted to start touching mm-hmm. on as we start looking at these bands like the confusions the marauders the sub-zeros uh there is a sound that's going metallic the shows that are still happening in the city are getting more violent so cbs is kind of like on a i don't know how much longer we're gonna do with yeah. the abc no rio stuff mm-hmm is really starting to pop out some wild music. And I know you touched on Andy Altercation. Mm. Eventually he would go on to play in other bands Like from that. I always wondered if stuff like Lament that was going on was almost like a reaction, like, all right, we're going to go in a different direction because, you know, Quicksand was getting ready to get started. Yeah. There was a whole different era of New York hardcore happening from 90 to 91. So I was wondering if part of what you guys, by shifting out of Maximum Penalty, just because the name, but sound wise was just that hardcore needed to shift or people just got tired of playing the same stuff. Like how do you feel thinking about it now? Like that? I
1: think cause so many people were metalheads, Joe. That's what it really was. And they weren't really allowed to be metal heads in the Lower East side. I'm just, I mean it wasn't like you weren't allowed, but it was like, it was skinhead dominated.
0: And yeah, was it was, yeah, it was
1: very aggressive. And, and it was like you were allowed to bring, but like Joe Affy was a metalhead. I mean, like, you know, and he was w- one of very few metalheads running around CB's, you know, in an established band. Everybody was like a skinhead still or, you know, very sort of like thugged out. It was get things were getting very thugged out at that point because NWA is happening and then Cypress Hill and does effects. And, you know, we're like hanging out like you know, all the time. So uh, between somebody's always playing, right. And then you're meeting even people from like in and Staten Island and nobody's perfect from Bay Ridge, Fuck, and, yeah. you know, it's like you, everybody's sort of coming together. But the one thing that isn't happening is we're not really penetrating through into the city as much. And now, you know, it's, we don't really need that. Like I didn't, I didn't get to play CBGBs till many years later, and had nothing to do with lament. Like, you know what I mean? But, but, I wanted that. I wanted to be a part of that, but we did, we had so many people around that even just playing the crazy country club on a Wednesday or a Thursday night was successful. And then by the way, life of agony is starting to happen. Like these um, biohazard are getting signed. And you know, there's this band American Eagle that like we friends with that we know that are doing pretty well. There's so much going on. First order is opening for Slayer at fucking Lamore. I mean, metal storm these things are all happening in brooklyn at that time people are traveling now to see shows that we booked from jersey from philly kids are coming from queens i met demise we start playing a lot with demise it's like sub-zero starkweather driving all the way from pa to come to shows oh did i mention only living witness they would start driving i mean like this is like look at this lineup of all these people man i mean this is just crazy And these are just bands that I'm using because I know people know who all these people are. I'm not even talking about the bands that only maybe people like you would know, like, you know, there's a whole other level of bands that I haven't even mentioned. So it's, it's, this thing is happening in the city. Things are getting very splintery. Clubs are closing. People are fighting. Lots of people are fighting and that hasn't come to the suburbs yet. So we have this suburban sort of Brooklyn hardcore scene thriving on the backs of Crazy Country Club and L'Amour and these occasional little things we would do outside of that. And we're meeting people from Westchester and Queens and Staten Island and Philly. And it's, I mean, what could be more humbling than having, you know, people from PA drive out on a Wednesday, Thursday night to see your little bullshit band that isn't on a big label, that isn't a part of the big hardcore scene. We had that. You know, and we and we, and people were starting to take notice, you know, it was becoming like destination uh booking to play Lemoore and the Crazy Country Club. But in my heart, I wanted to be honest with you, I wanted I wanted to be I wanted to go to CB's and have people know who we were. Like and that never really happened for me like that. It would happen for my brothers, but it wouldn't happen for me.
0: No, I think uh there is this 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 break of continuity in CBs that kind of gets lost to people that don't realize there's a whole era where there's no CBs, yeah. you know? And like you would, um, you brought up a bunch of bands like GB, GB and agnostic front and sick of it all would go on the play. Like one of the last GB shows for many years, you know, and GB broke up in part because of all the things that we're talking about, you know? And I, you also said about rest in pieces. Like there's a lot of these bands that come, with such big fervor and then the record stops as they either shift into different bands or the scene just kind of delineates out into different things, you know, but what you're talking about now, we would eventually like my group of friends would inherit this because of people like met from two of course, Jamie Davis, all the guys from Delaware. That's like the, that's, that's all our old heads, you know, like, you know, that the pagan baby guys were from our neighborhood, but we wouldn't even know about that until we met one of the younger brothers of Sean. Munch oh, was there before we, I was, I played soccer with Sean okay. uh, brother, Brett. Oh, and he was like, my brother, he's like, my brother was in brick house. And I'm like, and I was like, I had that seven inch because it said the name of our neighborhood. <laughs> and I was like, well, I saw it's, it's three blocks from my house. So like I bought that record, not even, I'm like, there's a hardcore band from Frankfurt. Like we were still in the process of finding hardcore and learning this kind of stuff. And you guys would befriend these people that we would, but, uh, obviously, I know because of the too damn hype mm. stuff, like that first East Coast Assault is probably the best snapshot of the bands you're talking about at the
1: yeah, time. Yeah, and we weren't a part of that, <laughs> which is funny to yeah, look no, at. Yeah, that's a kind of yeah, weird. Yeah, it's, they, you know, there was, because also you have now, uh, Lament put out the, the Drowning Room 7 Inch with yep. Sub Zero, um, another uh, uh, Clutch put out the Pitchfork EP, and then a band that I'm forgetting, which would become uh, Rob from uh, 108's uh, previous band. Uh, was on was on that label. Too. Oh, uh, release, release was a yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Release was a band that he did. Actually, with Chris Cap yep. and and people. Chris Cap was going to be in Freight mm-hmm. Trade. He's also Chris Cap. Also that hoodie, mm-hmm. that hoodie with the Orco mm-hmm. look. Chris Cap's the first guy in hardcore. Yeah. Draw so that. my
1: first. Our, and <laughs> yeah. and by the way, like Lament of all these bands, we were the first ones of our contemporaries to put a release out. So it was kind of, yeah, awkward. you guys,
0: how did you guys link up with Scott Wasserman? I, that?
1: Th- that was probably my, might, that it might've came through sub zero because they had a guy named, um, uh, who was like managing them at the time. Whose name escapes me. He's since passed away. a long time ago, but, uh, we were, we befriended sub zero through Mark Sisto because he was in breakdown and sub zero at Richie who would be, and, and I met them at that summer show and I just became immediate friends with like Lou and, uh, and Richie and Larry, um, and Jim, Jim was on drums at the time. And we just became really good friends Affy was already established with them and scott wasserman uh was i think the connection through sub-zero and he we decided we were all recording at the same time we were going to put releases out at the same time and i just remember uh you know this was like a big deal like i was like this was a huge deal because no one to finally get that seven inch out um was enormous You know what I mean? It was, it was considered such a big deal because everybody else had demos and we had a seven inch, you know what I mean? So it comes out and, um, you know, there's a little bit of a, a story behind that too, because what had happened was Scott and the other dude that he was working with clutch were already on this trajectory and they needed, I think, money to go to Europe to go on this tour with Sepultura and biohazard or something like that. And, you know, us and Sub-Zero, I think we never got any money from the, not that we deserved money. I'm not not saying it like that, but there was like a sketchy thing that happened. And then many years later, Laments in New Hampshire opening for sheer Terra and clutch. And, uh, Neil comes over to me and was like, hey, you're in the Lament, right? I go, yeah. He goes, you know I am? I go, yeah, I know you are. And he goes, listen, uh, I got somebody on my RV who's afraid to come out because he thinks you guys are going to like beat him up. And I was like, what the fuck is that <laughs> about? Like, I never beat up anyone. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then we had to have a little sit down with everybody because there was some bad feelings there from the seven inch because they did take whatever money they made from these things and gave it to Clutch to go to Europe and then they get signed to Atlantic. And I was just like, uh, like, you know, this hat, you know, like what kind of money are we talking? I mean, it was very childish, but we were angry and we squashed everything and everything was hunky-dory. And this is like 93, you know, 94. And we became good friends with Clutch as a result of that for a little bit and watched them become so famous. And it's just like, it's a pattern. Like, I just feel like I meet people that are so good at what they do and I befriend them as a person, but I never really get to that level musically. Ever. You know what I mean? For many reasons, which is fine. You know, I'm not bitter, but it's just, it's weird. We're talking about all my contemporaries and all of these people, you know, did so much better than what I did, including people I played with when they went back to their bands, like Joe and MP, you know, and it's just, it's, it's something that wouldn't end with, with lament, but it was something I started to notice uh so like i shifted focus to have more of like a like a real life job and get an apartment rather than go on a tour losing money for six weeks you know sleeping in in a back of a van with everybody which is great i i recommend doing it if you've never done it but um you know i just happened to notice like oh everybody's getting signed like marauders signed and like people are going on tour and like life of agony is becoming a big band and sub-zero is becoming a big band and you know i'm like oh i would i would have liked to have done that <laughs> you know what i mean i guess it's me and it definitely a part of it a huge part of it is just me i think i was i was sleeping a little bit because i just felt so comfortable because i didn't really have to earn that and that's just factual i didn't have to earn what a lot of other people are earned because i got to attach myself to maximum penalty and attach myself to joe you know and this, this, these were the people that would have done all the heavy lifting You know, and I remember every time at Lament would stop doing stuff and maximum penalty would start, maximum penalty would just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And And that didn't happen for me with Joe and Lament. You know, uh, you know, I think it was just a different sort of relationship. Like, I don't think that was really meant to be like that. It was great if it could have worked out, but we didn't really have we weren't really pushed like that on people and we didn't really push ourselves like that on people. But it was great seeing Marauder, Demise, and then like, you know, um, Sub-Zero, Starkweather, Only Living Witness. I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, look at the, the maximum penalty. Look at the success all these people have had. I mean, it's like, holy shit. You know, to be able to say, oh yeah, I played small clubs and befriended all these people and they're still mostly my friends, you know, and I'm in my fifties. That's fucking rad as fuck. You know, I would, would I like to have had that record that, you know, that some of these other people had or multiple records? Absolutely. But it just wasn't, it just wasn't working out that way for a lot of different reasons. I mean, it's just, you know, I think a lot of it was me not really giving it the effort that other people were because I felt I already had accomplished something, (laughs) even though I didn't really accomplish that much.
0: So yeah, I think the the counter to that is also that if you look at Marauder, they are culturally super important, but beyond hardcore, it's limited because of different things. I always say that when they signed to Century Media, because they had an imported record, it was harder for kids to get. You know, like if you talk to some of these bands, they're not saying like all the great that they did unless it's like. And then they're like waxing nostalgically. They're gonna they're gonna mention their pitfalls, mm. you know, like oh we never got we never got to be our peers. We never did this, you know, like so. I think, you know, uh, I I can relate to what you're saying because I, I have a very similar trajectory. Mm. Like was in bands, did tours, but we were never gonna be the big yeah. band, you know, like. But it's the it's the I think for what you went through. I mean, you're you are ground zero at a time in hardcore that I don't think I've seen since where like the entire trajectory of hardcore sonically changed. And then the influence from outside world finally started peeking in. And like you touched on started signing all these bands. I mean, it's happened in different waves, but that was like one of the biggest waves of, of just picking up. Like people finally had to take notice in New York hardcore. People finally had to start saying like, Hey, what the fuck's going on down (laughs) there? And then trying to, so it's awesome that you were like front front and center for it. And also that you're not sitting here in your 50s saying, like, if I don't do this next tour, I don't have money to pay. Well, that was
1: that was see. But I'll be honest with you. And this is something I've only kind of really been transparent about with people in the last couple of years. My my family situation, um, socioeconomically, was abysmal. Like it was like very bad. Um, You know, my parents had extended themselves far beyond their means, putting people in Catholic schools that they couldn't afford, racking up debt. You know they didn't own a home uh you know my uh you know uh you know we had bills i remember my father would change the spelling of his last name on certain bills you know it'd give you an, i'm not even kidding <laughs> Oh, school yeah you' yeah. no i'm not I kidding and and you know my car our car was registered to my grandpa like i did not have any like when i sang at the friars club i i did this big thing and again i was this is a professional theater company this is a major accomplishment for a 15 year old child right they said, uh, "Oh, um, if you, we can't let anybody in for free for this fundraiser to the fr- I sang in the Milton Berle room at the Friars Club, and wow. they uh, they said uh, tickets are sixty five dollars. This is nineteen eighty six. They're like, you know, uh, into eighty seven. They're like, let me know how many tickets your parents are going to want, and I I knew the answer already, right? But I feel like let me just tell my parents." And my parents were like, I, we can't afford to go to this. Like, we, we don't have this money at all. And I remember having to tell the theater conference, listen, I don't, I'm don't. i not going to have anybody here. Like, you know what I mean? I'm, my parents aren't going to be here. And I was one of the only kids whose parents weren't there because my parents couldn't afford to go. I mean, like, this was a dire situation. So my thing was I did not want to live my life like that. I, When I became older and I had a job, I wanted clothes. I wanted an apartment. I wanted a bed you know i didn't have my i didn't have a new bed my entire childhood i had hand me down beds i would get hand me down coats i would get hand me down sneakers i would get hand me down winter boots i didn't want to spend my life like that in a band i i chose job i said i'm going to work and do this in my spare time and i
0: when did you start making that shift
1: probably at like 20 cuz i moved out when i was like 20 years old and i had you know like a, I stopped going to school cuz i couldn't afford it I was paying for my own college, uh, um, which was like 700 bucks a semester at uh, CUNY at the time, which is all city universities of New York were like 675 And this is an 88, 80, uh, 89, 90. And I, I knew what it was like. Like, I remember lights getting turned off in my house. I remember, like, literally, like, my father would just freak out because there was no money for food and somebody ate too much food. Like, you were like, everything was like very lower middle class to the bone like to the bone. We didn't have, we had one air conditioner in the house for seven people. We have one bathroom. We had no heat upstairs where all the bedrooms were. There was a one space heater and this is real deal shit. And it was just like, I don't, I'm trying to get out of that. (laughs) You know, like I worked because I had to, because my family had no money and, uh, you know, I just didn't want to be poor in a band. I, I would rather have money to hang out with my friends and maybe help pay for the recording or pay for the t-shirts, or pay for the long weekend, then not have anything and now have to depend on these people who couldn't afford me as a child. And I'm certainly not going to be able to have them afford me as an adult. So that was one of my things. And I'm not not trying to cry poverty, but it's a very, like like when you go to your parents and you go, hey, I'm performing at this legendary place and I would really like you to be there. And they say no, because they can't afford it. I mean, I think it was 50 bucks. I don't think it was like 50 bucks in 1988. My parents couldn't come up with 50 bucks. Like even my dad to go by himself, just somebody to be there, you know? So I didn't want that life for myself. And I and I definitely didn't think there was a way to get there without that being the the thing. Like, you know, I remember talking to Neil Fallon on their uh, Winnebago in New Hampshire that time in like 92 or whatever the fuck it was, 93. And he's telling me, I was like, so you're on Atlantic? And he goes, yeah, it's, it's okay. You know, it's not great. And I was like, but dude, you're on Atlantic Records. And he was like, well, the first thing I have to do when I get back off this tour is find another job. That's literally like the day I come home is the day I go places looking for jobs. And I was like... Oh, that sucks! Like I'm like that's terrible. <laughs> like I
0: just don't- well, that's the that was the that was the carrot on the stick that a lot of guys didn't see. If you ever bored, there's a book by Dan Ozzy called Sellout. I've heard of it, and it kind of t- and it kind of touches on this whole thing where the investment from the the record labels it doesn't pay off for everybody, no. and a lot of people kind of feel like, hey, we're signed, we made it without all the work and the toil yeah. and, and and the scraping by. I think that I think specifically it's something that gets overlooked when it's like, oh, this band got signed so and I think specifically I'm sure that every one of your peers could at least in some way relate to the, oh, the property yeah. aspect, the large families. That was the time period where, yeah, most people had three or four brothers or sisters. And so all of these New York guys are all trying to get out there and make it happen. But there are people that kind of sat back and said, nah, this band's gonna make it mm-hmm. happen. And I don't know I don't know if many of your peers really ascended that much further than, you know, like what you, what we're talking about. So when you, when you get to the job point, what were you doing? Were you still going to shows? Yeah. Like, what were you, what were you focusing on job wise and how did you keep yourself involved with music? So at like time?
1: lament would break up and then maximum penalty would be a thing for a couple of years.
0: Well that was, didn't Jimmy go till like, like 93 or something like 94. Or something
1: yeah. Like that? He, 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 he came back home and then they started doing shows again um and then we did then we did uh what would become the levitate record in 94. so we would break up and then come back together and then it was like uh me joe this guy jeff Mackey, and max capshaw from a, he was in sick of it all for a hot minute but he was in a, He was also an h20 for a little bit there um and he, and you know we would do that run and at that point kevin had castle heights and um you know that was kind of like becoming a thing we did our record release for levitate at castle heights with sub-zero in like 94. and we also did the infamous um uh life of agony shelter show where the kid died um at Lamore from the bouncer that was a pretty big deal um we were doing and that's when we were doing stuff because met you know met had just done east coast assault and met was putting out shit. and met met was committed to do stuff you know you know, he was, you know, he was given a CDs.
0: He was doing all, was he doing all that yet or not? All that was, yeah, that, no, that
1: was, yeah, that was at the magazine. He had the magazine. Uh, he had the record label. He had the comp. Uh, he had his own band, Dare to Defy, which Les would become yep. the singer of. Um, you know, he had a lot going on. Met was a lot more hands. Met was doing a lot more than like the Inner Journey guys were doing. You know, uh, that's for sure. Uh, because he had better, I mean, he just had the means to do it um but met was like a wild guy you know i don't know how well you know met but he <laughs> still, still is. yeah well got, knock on wood right uh because what's going on there but um yep. Yep, by the way uh love you met um but he was like he was into the band i mean it was great having somebody like that into the band and sub zero were getting big Marauder were already big and you know it was just you know my brother had confusion at the time um they were still playing um it, it was we would do that. And then like lament would get very stale and then MP would get back together and then that would stop. And then MP would get back together. So like by the time, like the mid nineties rolled around, I was kind of done. I had gotten a job in finance, low, low level job, but it was a good job. And I was able to get my own apartment. And I thought I was done, honestly, like I was like only 20 something years old and I was like, yeah, I guess I'm done. I'm still going to shows, but you know, I'm a little annoyed about the lament stuff and I'm watching all these other people play these huge festivals and all this other stuff. And I'm a little like, oh, that kind of sucks for me. Boo hoo. And then somewhere around 97, uh, I get a phone call from John Zito. I don't know if you know who John Zito is. Yeah. John yeah. Zito, you know, he's an actor, for, but he was, you know, he's a hardcore guy. He was very friendly with Saab and Marauder and Sub-Zero and a lot of people and he asks me and he says hey man if i send you a demo of these guys do you think you'd want to do a band again and i was like oh like i don't think so i don't really want to start from the bottom and he was like well there's these guys in this band awkward thought they're trying to do they're trying to do a post hardcore band and i recommended you now at the time my brother mark is now becoming very big but i'm not really around for it and human is doing well I'm not really there that much cuz I'm working.
0: Was it work or was it just kind of like work. a little bit? It was bit a, of a despondency I didn't like, from Yeah, like, it
1: was it was a little bit of that. It was a little bit of both. It was yeah. like That's yo it could yo it can be
0: both. It's not it like a it's not a bad thing to kind of turn back and say, you know what? Like, fuck this. I gotta, Yeah. you basically were saying it. you're a little upset, but you're also saying, fuck this. I need to get my real life. I remember MP
1: were opening for suicidal or something somewhere. And I went after work in my work clothes and my cheap, you know, work tie and my work button shirt. And I just felt like such a herb, like, and I'm just like, oh, (laughs) like, it just felt, it felt icky. Like it just didn't feel like good to be that person. But like I said, I had my own apartment. I was, you know, I was building a little bit of a life for myself. I was dating who would end up be, becoming my my first wife uh, at the time. And John Zito calls me up, like, with my fucking house phone. And he was like, I'm going to send you this demo. And it was uh, uh, John Franco. The man. You know, still John around. Franco was playing bass and uh, Rob Seal uh, and this kid Wayne uh, on drums. And it was like three songs. And it sounded to me like like that post hardcore vibe which was kind of like my vibe and i was into it
0: what was the stuff that you think you would first attach the term post hardcore i'd
1: say quicksand i mean i to me and then you know people would say bands like shift but quicksand orange nine burn like that shift and then even like helmet i didn't know like because it was so crunchy and like you could tell there was some hardcore derivative in that fucking shit like honestly like or at least
0: at least an influence Yeah, and of, of course know, into uh,
1: another. I mean like these things are big in the 90s as you as most people know. And I love that stuff. And that was
0: Well, so uh, it's when you say most people know that the one going to bring it up is in the 2000s music publicists get fucking uh, and publicity and all this new shit comes out from the Warped mm. Tour and they dubbed all this metal and pop shit post-hardcore oh
1: that's embarrassing. like there's
0: god-awful pop music yeah. that's either metallic or or like has nothing to do like with like
1: sevenfold type stuff right?
0: that I, 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 exactly oh, all get guessing. all get the moniker of post-hardcore now Ugh. and i'm always like no nice. and i'm like no 20 years ago some dickhead needed a job <laughs> and didn't know that there was an entire scene of bands like But the only reason why I brought oh yeah it's fun- so
1: up. so they get me this tape in the mail and i'm listening to it and i write three songs and i don't and so we go to the studio i think jimmy williams owned night owl at the time but it was a recording studio there was the the music building across the street in like 32nd street um uh ultrasound famous studio um and i went and i rehearsed with these dudes and they liked the stuff i wrote and i was like oh this sounds good let's do it again so then i called up Jimmy Williams because he owned a recording studio. I asked him to do the demo and he had his partner, Paul, this like British dude did it with us. And I remember they were like, Oh, this is actually pretty good. And like, I would, they were surprised. And I was like, yeah, it's actually pretty good. And I was like, yeah, you know, and you know, maybe we'll do something with it. I don't really know. So I, John Franco is already like looking to get out of this band because awkward thought is able to go to Europe or something like that, but he's going to stick around for a little bit. And uh, I called the band Tony Stark, which is so funny now because this was so not on the radar of Marvel Comics. Fuck.
0: Well, that was I was going to ask you is is like in comparison to today, that was a very low key. Like there's a lot of references in New York hardcore like um, it's obviously the yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know, there's, there's all these little things that nobody really gets from books and comic books and stuff that were referenced in the New York hardcore bands. And now the door is wide open and everybody in the fucking world. Oh, is yeah. but at the, the time science. it was,
1: and I was like, let's make it one word. So nobody, you know, and, and that, so, uh, but Mark is doing really well. He's about to get signed to victory and humans playing all the time. Castle Heights is doing really well. Kevin's managing like sworn enemy and all this other stuff is happening, but I'm like on the outside of that. And, um, you know, I put this band together with these cats and then I start doing these very small shows, um, mostly opening, you know, small shows at like Castle Heights and stuff like that. And then I start getting bigger shows because, you know, Mark is hot shit. Kevin's hot shit. Mike is hot shit. And, you know, I'm open, I'm getting opening slots, but I'm getting opening slots at like the wetlands and I'm getting opening slots at like Coney Island I and, uh, you know, opening for good bands like Fahrenheit and um i forget who else was on some of these shows and now people are digging it right but again john franco wants to go do awkward thought um the band's a little sloppy you know i rushed it onto a stage because i just i felt like it was you know it was i had to strike while the iron was hot i wasn't really vibing with these guys the way i thought i was he leaves a guy named ray canapini who was in a band uh, called sealed with a fist with darren from maximum penalty um, he jumps in there to play bass. He's really a guitar player, but he's going to play bass and he's tight with Rob seal. Now mind you, both of these guys would go on to do Joe coffee with uh, Paul bear. Um, and, uh, we're off to the races. And then a guy I know from my personal, from my finance life is friends with AJ Falvo who owns, um, resurrection, resurrection AD. AD. and he's like, listen, I, I got, you gave, I gave him my demo. I was just tapes. These were fucking demo tapes the tail end of demo tapes and he goes i'm just gonna give this to aj i'm hanging out with him this weekend we're gonna go skateboarding or whatever and i was like okay whatever aj fucking calls me like right away i was like dude first of all i just want to tell you i tried to sign your brother mark man uh i think shutdown down are fucking amazing uh but they ended up getting a better deal you know so that's cool but i just wanted to tell you that i was like okay that's cool and he was like i love this shit i think it's fucking great do you guys want to do like an ep or something do you have other songs and i go yeah we didn't have other songs and I go, yeah, we got tons of songs. We didn't have any, really any material. But now Ray is <laughs> writing with Rob. I'm writing like all the lyrics and stuff like that. And we put together the, the high tech, low life EP. I guess that's 98.
0: 98. Yeah, 98.
1: And uh, people like it. Like it's. It's it takes a bit of a shit like people like uh, like critically, because I think he had it sent to like McGaffey and charted like it's doing well with people, but it's not doing well. with People who review because you could tell the band's not really like it's kind of new and like they're like, oh, this band's rushed to the studio or whatever. AJ pumps a bunch of money to the band. We go record in uh, Utica and we do the EP. And, uh, you know, I wrote this song when I was living in Manhattan um, for my roommate at the time because he started dating this other girl we were friends with. And she was like fucking up this whole scene we had of all these friends that we would hang out with. Um, and I called the song uh, trailer. And AJ liked it so much that he was like, I'm going to pay to put this on, on, a, on a, some comps. And he put it on a skateboard comp for, um, Lance mountains, three, one, one. You remember those tapes? Like those, yeah. You know, for people who bike and skate, these, these tapes were a big deal. This was like pre warp tour, you know, you would people would buy these tapes all over the country, and he puts it on on three one one, and all of a sudden now everything is fucking coming at us, right? Like big, big thing, like big people are coming wanting to know who sings this song trailer that's on the three one one comp, and you know, I now I feel like holy shit, like this is this is something, right? So we end up getting offers from people that work for major labels and one of the offers we got was to go record with Steve Albini in Chicago. Uh, Yeah. It's a guy who would sign indecision in crisis. I can't remember the name of that label, but it was a guy who was um, uh, Steve Sinclair. He was like a pretty big player in the music industry. He hears it through McGathy or hears trailer uh, through the skate comp and the kids that work for him are like, you got to sign this band. You got to sign this band. Um, so we go have a meeting at the Lisbonard street in, in uh, near canal street in uh, the village, in, uh, uh, the, in the city. And it's this gorgeous office. And when we show up to the office, they're playing the fucking EP in the office through all the speakers. Like it was like such big fucking baller shit. And uh, <laughs> Steve Sinclair is like, I want the bands. I want the bands, you know, what is it going to take to make this happen? Now we added a second guitarist because Around that time, uh, we were playing some shows with what would be called Absolute Bloom. Do you know who that is? No, that's Mina Caputo's band when Mina got kicked out. And for the purpose of the conversation, oh yeah, yeah, when they did it, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Well, no, no, no. I remember that point in time specifically because Souls at Zero guy gets back on the gets on the mic on that point for the band. I didn't know that. I didn't know that she had a band at that time. So that's yeah. new, that's new information. So just for me. just because it might
1: be confusing people, we'll just refer because at that time that was Keith Caputo. So just for everybody, you know, just yeah. for the record, there. So uh, and I've never met Mina for the record. So I only know Keith Keith Caputo when Keith Caputo was called Keith Caputo. So I did not really like Keith Caputo. I did not like Life of Agony. I had some issues with Keith that will you know I I just don't feel like rehashing. But my brother Kevin is working with Ken Creedy because Kevin is like hey you should do some some shows out of state with absolute bloom and i was like oh you know i didn't like keith at life agony at the time because he was kind of a bit of a troublemaker locally in brooklyn and he started some shit a bunch of years ago and i just never really vibed with that guy and then uh so kevin books a show just to see how it goes with tony stark who might be signing this fucking deal uh, you know, and, and recording with fucking Steve Albini in Chicago with Keith Caputo is being managed by Ken Creedy, who at, the, at one point managed life of agony type of negative. So yep. we play with them. Uh, I talked to Keith for the first time in like a decade and we're having a nice conversation and he goes, I think we're going to do some stuff to hunt. And I was like, yeah, I think we are. You know, Kevin is negotiating this, us going to open for them for two weeks while we're you know getting money from aj who's trying to help us get on a bigger label everything's working out great and then keith fires the whole band and moves to amsterdam and we didn't know this while we're booking and buying things to go on this tour yeah so i'm then i'm angry at keith all over again but the guitar player was a guy named pete fragletti who uh loved tony stark he was like when we played he was like who the fuck is that you know so Another guy who's a skateboard person uh, who worked with Bass Brooklyn and some skateboard magazines called me up. It's was like, hey, would you guys be looking to get a second guitarist? That's how Pete comes in. Um, and now we have, you know, a really good guitar player who could write. And, you know, we have this, you know, the band's getting a lot tighter. But unbe- unbeknownst to me, the guys in the band were wanted to throw me out and put the guy Pete in to sing and play guitar. I didn't know any of this. None of this was like, we would play shows and like Ray, the bass player would tell the sound man, Hey, our vocalist sucks. Can you just lower the vocals as much as possible in the mix? That would be great. And like, I didn't know any of this until like much later on. And then we're about to sign this deal with uh, this guy, Steve Sinclair. He's going to give us something like 40 grand to go record with fucking Steve Albini for like a week in Chicago. And uh where i'm about to get married like a couple weeks later and then as we're having the conversation uh they basically all say we don't we don't want to do the band anymore we don't want to do the band with you we don't want to record and i'm like what the fuck is going on like we just spent a year and a half doing all this
0: yeah working your ass off to get to this And
1: uh ray in particular was the catalyst who thought i was terrible thought i was an asshole uh unbeknownst to me i didn't know any of this and he had convinced rob and wayne that you know that we could have this guy pete sing and pete is like um i don't want to do that i'm only here i can't i'm here because of him like i you know i you know i i don't even like this isn't what i really want to do so uh that dies on the vine and i have to turn the 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 deal down and all this other stuff uh i think it was mia records that was named the label mia i still have the contract in the house and i get married and then i try to have like this mia culpa with everybody you know, and then I sit down with the drummer Wayne and the guy Pete, and they basically tell me, yeah, like Ray hates your guts. Like he's been trying to throw you out, like literally since the day he met you. And I'm like, what the fuck is this fucking scumbag shit? So, um, I'm furious. So I'm like, well, what do you want to do? And they're like, Pete was like, "Listen, you know, I, I don't really like this post-hardcore shit anyway. I I want to write like rock songs, like Stone Temple Pilots and you know the Foo Fighters. You know, would you be interested in doing that?" And I was like, oh, rock bands, like you know what I mean?" I was like, "I'm like, you know, I I, I, I really do going to do a rock band now." But he, he had some good ideas, and I called up Mike from Social Disorder, Mike Trasinski, the bass player, who was long that was long done at that point. I think. And he was, you know, a Wall Street guy too. And he was an amazing bass player. And we played the songs for him. And he was like, "This is really good. This is like like modern day rock." Now, I should also bring up at the time, you had bands like Third Eye Blind, and uh, whatever, like these like rock rock bands were blowing up, like single. You know what I'm talking about? Like
0: absolutely. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Is I feel as if some of the bands that you were talking about, the post hardcore, were really guys from hardcore bands, and then there was like people who were really good musicians who that sound kind of mm-hmm. took over at the end yeah. of the nineties, but they really preferred to do more like radio accessible yeah, rock radio is what, what rock. I was going to, Oh alternative rock.
1: And you know, Pete was big fan of stone temple pilots who were enormous. I mean, Jesus, they were enormous. Yeah. But then you also had like, uh, I don't want to say th- there's th- three eleven, And then that other band that had a bunch of, there was like, these rock bands were popping up, right? Like, and they were like meat and potato rock bands. So I was like, well, yeah, fuck it. You know, I won't we won't be able to do these like post hardcore shows anymore, but you know, we'll play rock shows. Like, why the fuck not? Rock is big right now, radio rock is huge. Um, so we called the band Synthetic Sixteen. Uh, because when we played it for AJ, you know, we wanted to still stick with AJ. And he was like, Oh, this sounds like music sixteen year old girls would buy. Like, I don't know if I want to put this out. And
0: Which is crazy because now any label in the world would. Watch. Yeah, exactly. But this or is also the late it. night, like two nineties <laughs> up to 2000.
1: Yeah. Now an interesting thing happened. So I'm doing this and I'm building this rock band. affy gets in contact with me and this is like 2000. And I was like, you know, you want to do some lament shows? And I was like, yeah, I was like why the fuck not? Cause I'm just playing all the time. So this is like 2000 into 2001. And that was the last time I played in Philly was, uh, met, had put a show together with us on the toilet boys. And I th-
0: yeah, at these uh, rec- radio, at his yeah, we would store. do the
1: record store stuff, and then we also did a club show because um, the Toilet Boys did a matinee for all ages, and then it was us.
0: Oh, was um, was it on the was that South yeah, I think Street? so. Yeah, it
1: was South Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't.
0: Know. Oh yes, that was uh, that was <laughs> so he convinced he convinced the venue to let him do like a, a run of shows for the mm-hmm. X Games.
1: Yeah, because I was still working with him. Yeah, at the we time. did. uh I think somebody good played might have been um what's his face from a uh, black train Jack who passed away his other band.
0: Oh yeah. It was, um, yeah. Oh, God, um, isn't that terrible. Nine, nine lives. Yeah. It was whatever, us. Nine called? lives,
1: yeah. the toilet boys. Now we hadn't done lament shows in a long time. We did a couple of shows. We rehearsed a lot, but I think MP was still going to do some stuff. And I was doing a lot of stuff with synthetic 16. Um, and then I think nine eleven happened, So that was also something that kind of put the brakes on everything. But I, I got immersed now in this rock shit, And now, uh, you know, I'm playing tons of rock shows. Um, I'm, I'm, AJ is pumping a lot of money into the Synthetic 16 record. Um, And he puts it out in 2001. And, uh, you know, he pays a lot of money to get it charted. And we're on like a lot of college stations. And I remember my wife, um, you probably don't know this, but my first wife, she was from Montgomery County. So I was in, yeah, I was in a lot. I got married. My wedding reception was at um what's that famous place near there? Oh god, I just it's a restaurant that everybody knows. I had a wedding reception there. I can't it sounds terrible but it was. Cool.
0: Fishes, now, if you said
1: it you'd be like get the fuck out of here. Um like it's one of these kind of really nice uh, places that like has like a it's like really fancy but it's like in like um it's like in Montgomery County. Uh like Bluebell. I guess Bluebell.
0: Oh, shit. That's where that's yeah, yeah. so
1: I had a So that's where my wedding reception was. And um so I'm there a lot. My mother-in-law dies. She was very sick. And I remember I had to take a week off, and I'm out there. And my record had just come out. And um, uh, what's a big college near near there? Like huge. Always big in basketball. Villanova, right? Where's Villanova? Yeah. So my brother-in-law at the time was like, hey, I, he went to Villanova. He was like, there's this awesome alt, alt, alt record store. Do you want to come? We're going to go there. And there's like one of the days off, like in the wakes and the funeral and everything. So we drive there. This is a true story. It sounds like such bullshit. So we drive there and it's this cool record store. Don't know the name of it. It was very edgy and like had all this cool stuff. And they had their top 20 records or top 10 picks of the of the week or something. Right. And fucking the Synthetic 16 Your Water album is number eight. Now, I had no. Now, my brother, in law Terry, is with his wife. And he was like, come here, man. He goes, come here. Did you fucking know about this? Did you know about this? And I'm like, no. And he goes, how is this possible? And then the girl goes, oh, I think I have a poster for this in the back. He goes, there's a poster? Like, you know what I mean? And, and, <laughs> she, and he was like, you got to get them to sign the poster. And the girl was like this punk rock girl, completely disinterested. I mean, like, I'm like a bald 29-year-old, like chubby weirdo you know like dressed like a fucking you know nerd and that was not flying and i just remember begrudgingly signing the poster and she could give a fuck like she could care less right so oh the william Penn inn that's right my reception yeah. oh okay is that Bluebell? Yeah, that's what yeah, the nice deal uh yeah, yeah it's, it's nice so i was in pa a lot at the time so i just remember that thing in villanova and i remember calling all the guys in the band up going dude you're not going to believe this but like your water is like in this top 10 at villanova and and uh, we're getting charted in like number three in evansville indiana like we're getting oh this is when people still paid for charting services like mcgathy and you know to aj's credit man above anybody else i never seen a guy figure out a way to fucking put put that kind of money on somebody like honestly like it was he bought us equipment we bought the shutdown van like we bought the van from shutdown. <laughs> like he was pumping because his thing was this band's going to get signed to a label, a major label, and I'm going to get the vapors from that. And that's going to be great because you almost got signed to a major label on that Tony Stark EP. And this is way more better produced and there's more money into it and you're, you're better well rehearsed. But, you know, the, the, uh, although we were able to, you know, parlay that into doing some touring and doing like TV show and we got into a movie and some of this other stuff. It wasn't, you know, it was very competitive. You know, I wasn't prepared for how many good rock bands they were. <laughs> you know what I mean? Joe, there was.
0: Yeah, you you kind of went from a small pond <sighs> to a little bit of bigger pond into an ocean of just holy shit. There's a lot. Yeah, I
1: higher. remember we went to Arizona because we had to do a, um. We did a TV. We did Good Morning with Good Morning Phoenix. We played the morning show, and uh, yeah, wow. I, this is in two thousand two thousand. We played the morning show and we also opened for modern english at this beautiful club and i just remember um like we i flew in from uh from kennedy to uh with mike the bass player we flew into phoenix we flew into phoenix and we had to go from the airport to play a show like right away and i just remember i was like this is going to be my life this is what my life is going to be like i'm like i'm going to get a plane I'm going to go do a show and then I'm going to go do a morning show and then I'm going to do the radio show and then I'm going to open for big bands. And then I'm not going to, and I just like, I cultivated, like my life was going to be like this on the strength of this one leg of like five days in Arizona, five very busy days doing radio and TV and playing shows. And I just remember coming home like even telling my wife i was like you know i'm not going to be able to work much longer because you know i think this record's going to do really well and we're probably going to get signed and da, da, da. and i just like i hear myself saying it now like from then and it was just the worst move ever because what i should have done was what i was already doing keep working maintaining normal relationships <laughs> keeping my ego in check you know what i mean as best as i could and unfortunately like this demon like, gets a hold of me. There's something about playing like that that brings out very bad aspects of my personality. And I started fucking up. And my version of fucking up is not alcohol or violence or fights or, you know, uh, hardcore drugs. It's cheating, it's like attention seeking. And I started fucking up pretty bad. And, um, you know, my marriage collapsed. And then uh, the band continued. And then I got married again. And, you know, that I kind of got that aspect in check, but then the band started to get very dull because that, that, you know, when things didn't sort of come to fruition and we threw Pete out and we put Steve from shutdown in the bands to play like lead guitar because he liked the band so much. And then we were recording with a guy um, who had a small label who used to work for TVT. And then he puts us on some festivals, some music festival stuff. And then I complained about the record, the second follow-up record coming out, not coming out on time in like 2003. And this dude basically says, well, fuck you. I'm Now I'm not putting it out and I'm keeping it and you can go fuck yourself. And the band just tr- chums along after that uh, for a couple of years. And then I opened my store and I think I'm kind of done, like, you know, with music forever at that point. This is like 2006. Uh, we never made a follow-up record. We never, you know, we were only able to get it released about a year and a half ago digitally um, because, you know, we, we didn't, we, we was like lost, you know, um, and everybody that was sort of, you know, guessing my head for all that time, I guess, you know, saw that there wasn't, this wasn't going to be a big jump for me musically. Like it just, whatever happens is what happened and that was it. And then I put my focus into, you know, uh, I buying a comic book store with my brother in 2006 and, um, you know, just trying to like work and that kept me close to music too, because we became friends with so many people in the bands through that, like in the hardcore scene, people were supporting it. And, you know, we were selling tickets for the black and blue bowl and selling pitchfork t-shirts and all that other stuff. But at the time I was completely disconnected from music. And then a couple of years later, you know, uh, maximum penalty were working on, um, the, you know, the big comeback record. Uh, that they did there. um what the hell's the name of that record? Isn't that terrible? I'm so sorry.
0: Oh, the one on the yeah.
1: Reaper? Yeah, the full length. Life uh, and Times. Give
0: me a second. That's right. So here's it. I'll tell you something funny about this. So this is a bizarre thing. I don't know if you know this. This is not like a I did oh, this God. moment, but it's kind of... <laughs> So Maxwell Pelly, because of all the things mm. you're talking about, Matt, Jamie Davis, Pennsylvania, yeah, yeah. Philadelphia, New York, Maxwell Pelley is the band that I saw play in front of almost mm. nobody. And so I was like, went up to the guy and said, dude, we could have brought more people than what's here. And the guy's like, cool, here's a bunch of tickets, get four bands and you guys can come and play. And that was the start of me. Oh, wow. Shows. Small so, world, man. We, because of Maximum Penalty, we started doing shows. And later on, I had Bane coming through the church. And it was back before they would bring, like, they were kind of in a lull where they weren't doing like 700 mm. kids. They were doing like three oh, or 400. Wow. And their booking agent was like, Yeah, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to do Maximum Penalty on the show. And Aaron Bedard, and obviously the whole band fucks with Maximum mm. Penalty, but. Aaron Bedard was like, I fucking love them. Oh my God, this is so cool. <laughs> so MP at the time had that record kind of mm. demoing. And I because Joe had been hitting me up, like, yo, Joe, we're you know, we're we're starting to do some songs again. It was two thousand and eight. Mm. Yeah. And I had we did them on the fest that year. They played uh actually it was in order. They did the Bane Show, they played the Fest, and that winter Terror was doing a week run and they wanted to play mm. Philly and it was do you know anybody who's got a van and somehow or another maximum penalty ended up pouring yeah, from like five hurt. days? I
1: remember Jimmy got hurt, brought his leg.
0: But because Kitzel was still hanging out mm-hmm. with Terror, he got a hold of that he got a hold of that record. And that's how that all wow. came about. But I remember when they were talking about Terror, they're like, Do you know anybody? I'm like, dude, you guys should just do Maximum Penalty. I'm sure they would do it. They yeah. didn't, like, you know, and that's that kind of linked it all up. And I remember being like, and I remember Joe being like dude, we did this thing with Terror. I think they're going to do a record. Like, I don't know. It was so fucking cool. And that is one of the coolest. It's such a it's such a standalone yeah. record in their career, but it's one of the few times I've seen an older New York hardcore band come out of thin air by the young kid standards, pop up, drop songs, and the scene is like, this is fucking fantastic. Yeah. And, and it still stands oh, as one fantastic. of the best New York hardcore. I, for a long time, I said it was like the best New York hardcore record of the, of the, of the end of I the year. I remember 2000s. Joe
1: playing it for me. And I'm like, and he was like, just tell me, because, like, you know, tell me. And I go, Joe, it's really good. I go, no, no, Joe, it's really, really good. Now, mind you, I, I don't know if you remember this, but I was there when they did all this because I was touring with them a lot. I was so invested in how much I appreciated that record and was happy for Joe that I was with them on a lot of those dates and that, and I had the store. And I remember one of the years I couldn't, he was trying to get me to close the store early to, to make, I think I missed that, that, that year. But I remember like going with them to uh, United blood, the first year of the United blood in Virginia, driving up me, Joe and Jimmy. And I just was helping them do merch and helping them set up. And I helped them set up with a couple of your shows, a couple of this is hardcore's and the black and blue bowl. You know, uh, they had a really great set at that Black and Blue Bowl that, around that time. And I just remember I was so content to just watch them do well, watch my you know, my closest friends in the world, you know, and the band that kind of changed my life to just stand there and watch this on stage. And I was just like I was so ha- like that was one of the few times like I could, you could visibly I was audibly so happy for somebody else in music because I, all the monkeys are off my back i don't care about my music. No that's what i was going to
0: ask you, you you finally you finally kind of put aside like the things didn't work yeah, out for me make, and you're just like, actually make. happy for but your I, but i it
1: took me that i took me almost 40 years old to be able to say oh my god like like this is so cool now it's different with my brothers right because they're my brothers so i remember mike opening for dri at like the, the paramount theater or some shit and uh, and human were great. And I just remember being like, yeah, this is like a quintessential thing for my brother. Like, I hope he appreciates this and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, those are my brothers. Like, whether it's Mark doing the Black and Blue Bowl, a shutdown coming up, Mark doing the rabies benefit, Mike doing the, like, this is different for me. But for Joe and for MP in particular, which that I am so tied to because that was the catalyst for me to have anything in music, to just stand there and watch that or, or even to fucking help them sell merch or to fucking help pack up gear. Or to fucking you know just hit the road with them for a day or two, like that was I could not I that was the, honest to God I this is gonna sound such bullshit, I had more fun doing that than I ever had performing because it was stress free, it was nothing but love and I just had such a good time with my friends like you know what I mean it was like oh this is what I wanted it to be like but I was so caught up in. Performing or wanting, making sure there were kids here or making sure we had, were we opening before that? Like, not all that goes away when it's your friends, right? And you're just there to have a good time. And I, that run for them, I was a part of a lot of that run, roadieing and just hanging out, you know, the sick of it all show they did for that, that they opened up for them at that theater. Uh, I think that was like almost a sold out show. Um, they did a big show with you, with Judge that year. They did the the black fucking and blue yes. bowl with GB. Like I was at all the shit and I just was so fucking happy, dude. And, you know, um, and it's in part not just because it was like a big thing for me. Like I needed to get that that monkey off my back. And I didn't even like think about anything music wise or anything like that until about a year or so. And then years would go by. And then the guys from Synthetic 16 were like, oh, we're going to get this released digitally. The album that never came out. And at that point, I was so far removed from everything. I was just doing the wrestling podcast. I fell ass backwards into doing uh, a wrestling podcast called Wrestling Soup, which is a very popular wrestling podcast.
0: Well, that's what I was going to. Uh, that's what I was going to ask you because I, I I know we're yeah, been yeah. talking a while. But in two thousand and one, I know I, I remember you were saying you were involved in mm. finance, and then obviously that's a really crazy time. And then the end of the two thousands. Had to be even a harder time for you. Yeah, yeah. I
1: was at Lehman Brothers when they <laughs> when they crashed. I was an analyst at Lehman Brothers.
0: So, so you guys kind of pivoted. You kind of pivoted a lot yeah. around that.
1: Yeah. Well, the store was dependent on my Lehman Brothers money. The the Brooklyn Monster Factory that we opened, and then I kept it afloat for like two years into the into the recession there, the global recession, and then I ended up having to sell it, and then I just kind of settled into like a quiet like life, and then um, you know I met my met up with my high school girlfriend who's now my wife over like a Jewish holiday or over like Thanksgiving for coffee. And next thing I know I'm moving upstate, you know what I mean? In 2014. And uh, you know, I, I leave finance and I build this life with my wife and her children and we get married a year later. My father passes away that year. My best friend commits suicide that year. I, I needed to get out of that life of the city and I needed to have more stability. So I come up here and then my brother Kevin has on a big wrestling podcast because we were always big big wrestling fans and horror movie fans.
0: Well, that's what I, I was going to – you guys are kings. Like the conversation with Kevin I could have probably did for seven yeah. hours. I mean after we did the first podcast, we talked for three more hours after that. <laughs> but your family has like a – has a ability to not just immerse themselves in cultures but absorb information and become fans. Like Mike is – a historian, he, 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 oh his yeah. own right between punk, metal, and hardcore. Kevin is between metal and knowing he re, probably remembers every single name of every person. Yeah, he's probably. Ever met. And he has one of the he has a huge was it like fifteen years of podcasting. Yeah, he was early. Uh, he was podcasts. early in
1: podcasting for wrestling, and his podcast that he was doing was was a noteworthy was like a trendsetter. So, I'm listening to his, uh, a, his podcast, and these two guys are on there. Uh, a guy is on there named uh, Missionary Thomas, and he has like, this great radio voice, like a throwback. And he's very funny. And it turns out he has a show called Wrestling Soup. So, I start listening to that show, and I send them an email. I go, Hey, dude, I'm Kevin Castle's brother. Like, I love the show. And they're like, You need to come on. Like, you know, because you're the brother that he always went to wrestling with in the 80s at, like, The Garden. And I end up uh, vibing with these guys so well. And they were like, Hey, keep coming on the show. And I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna do wrestling podcasts now." Like, what the fuck did this happen in my life? And it was such a successful run that, like, it changed my life again. Now I'm doing fucking like, you know, this huge wrestling podcast that gets like a million downloads a year or something like that. And in uh, a bunch of years ago, like when WrestleMania was in Jersey, we do a we do a show where it's a, a at Lucky Thirteen, like a hangout show. And like a hundred people show up to fucking hang out in the back room. And it's just like, I'm taking pictures with people. Now affy is there and all these other people there at lucky 13. And like, the fuck is going on? Like, you know, I was like, Oh yeah, I have this wrestling podcast. And these kids came from all over the country to fucking come hang out. And, you know, I parlayed into that. And then COVID happened, And we were supposed to do a big theater show with GCW in Florida when WrestleMania was in Florida during the 2020. And uh, that got canceled. And then I just lost interest because there was COVID like, Audienceless less wrestling. And I just lost interest. Like I just wasn't as into it anymore. So I uh, segued into doing my own podcast where we just do talk about like movies and it's called break the apocalypse. And we got to pull a lot of people over from the wrestling world. I still go back to wrestling soup every now and then and do stuff. Uh, Kevin is on that network now. It's still a very, it's at the top 20 Patreon uh, 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 wrestling podcast. But in the interim of all that, people discovered that I was in bands through the podcast and they're like, Oh my God, you're in a band. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. And they're like, how many different things did you do? And I was like, yeah, I, I did music. I did rock band. I did hardcore bands. Uh, you know, and now I do, uh, you know, a podcast, but I think it was a nice sort of way to transition into keeping yourself in like forms of entertainment and media, you know? I mean, you know, like, look at you, like you were a guy in bands who, you know, now runs this huge successful fucking, you know, uh, you know, event driven show that people travel from all over the country, you know, that is, you know, I'm sure like a very difficult thing to do, but I'm sure like 10 years ago, did you think this would be like the fit, like this would be what it was for you?
0: Yeah. So like when I was talking to Kevin, he had mentioned being, yeah, can you hear me? <laughs> yeah. When I had Kevin on the show, he had mentioned being a podcaster for wrestling for like 15 years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was early in on that and then his show became so successful. um, You know, it it was pretty, pretty wild. I mean, they got a lot of attention from people in the industry and he he got to meet, you know, got to befriend other podcasters that did pretty well. And then I was able to sort of stumble into that ass backwards from just listening to him that I ended up on Wrestling Soup, which was a very successful show that I did for a bunch of years. And then from there, I started doing, like, my own podcast, which is what I've been doing for the last few years called Break the Apocalypse, where we just talk about, like, movies and, like, pop culture and entertainment stuff, and uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, you know, you've been doing this for a while now yourself, right? Like, how long have you been doing this show? I started in
0: September of 2021, and okay. I actually kicked my ass for not starting sooner, because <laughs> I, 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 especially in sooner in the pandemic, because... The, the yeah. schedule shifted so much from when it was like oh I can get anybody to oh I don't know I got a lot going on I'm like fuck I don't I didn't plan for that you know
1: yeah yeah I mean it's you know it's it's very fun I mean I enjoy it you know I I enjoy the 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 ease of it of course when the internet is working right but I enjoy <laughs> the ease of it and it, it it affords you the luxury to talk to so many different people like in a long form way. I mean, where else are you really going to be able to do that? Right. It's just there's really no other medium like it. I mean, it's very passe now. Everybody has a podcast. But, you know, when it's successful and people react to it and you enjoy putting the labor into it, it doesn't feel like work. You know, it feels like a very casual sort of thing. And, you know, it's something you can do for a very long period of time too. like something you could continue to do. You know, someone like myself, my hearing is shot. I'm, you know, I've just turned fifty-two. I don't really have it in me to perform like that anymore. It's just not really where I'm at in my life. But I'll I can still talk, you know, I can still talk a good deal, as you know. And, you know, I enjoy that and I enjoy getting to, you know, share stories and, and stuff like that. And people seem to really gravitate to the the music stuff because it's never really been told before. Like, you know, I haven't really sat down and and told a lot of stories about the bands or anything like that in any other format.
0: Well, I figure you have to separate because of the content, the wrestling fan. Yeah. There's a lot of crossover and there's a lot of, we could go, we could spend hours to talk about the crossover and wrestling and hardcore, but I imagine the fan base really doesn't want to go beyond just like, this is what's in wrestling and, and, uh, or is it, or can you get into that?
1: Yeah. I mean, they like it's entertainment, right? So it's like a lot of people like comics, a lot of people like horror movies, you know, we're going to actually change the format of the show. We're going to get out of we got kind of I kind of sucked us into like, you know, world news and that kind of stuff. And, you know, we're just going to go back to talking about entertainment stuff and stuff in our personal lives and music. And, you know, uh, you know, I do it with a guy from Philly who grew up in Philly, who's uh, uh, Shaheen. He's, uh, you know, and uh, my buddy Bisho O'Brien. he's from Ohio. You know, it's really like just a labor of love for the three of us to just have fun. And I like the regimen of it. I like knowing every week I'm going to sit down with these guys and talk and, you know, pulling topics. You know what I mean? Like, I I like that aspect of it. You know, it's almost like a bizarro newscast, you know, (laughs) something like that, where, you know, you got to have the topics ready and, you know, uh, you know, and we have a great Patreon. People support the show for Patreon, which is pretty fantastic. It's very humbling. You know, we don't we have a small but very loyal following. And uh, I'm grateful to have it, you know, coming from like playing small punk shows and hardcore shows and small rock shows and, you know, driving to towns where nobody's there and all this other stuff to just have like this little feedback from people from like outside of the country and from the West Coast and a smattering of hardcore people. And you know, it's fun. Like when I told people I was doing this, I forgot like so many wrestling people like hardcore and they were like, oh my God, this is hardcore, holy shit. I was like, yeah, dude, I, I was in a hardcore band. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's why I'm going on the show. So it's like, it's, it's, it's a way, it's the, I love the medium because I feel like I discover so much you know about people and and about things that maybe otherwise I wouldn't and that's that's kind of where I'm going to park my ass you know for for the next bunch of years and as long as there's people that you know want to talk and you know want to hear good stuff I'm, I'm happy to put the stuff out I really am.
0: No, I think uh, specifically we have another podcast that we do from time to time called Rule of Three, and it's Richie from Wisdom and Chains who has the Post America podcast yeah. and OG Jeff who does Broad Street Breakdown with Vinny and P. You know, the three of us kind of are all good friends, so we had our own thing. And it becomes yeah. even ours, which we don't we don't regulate when, kind of like, oh, let's do one. The fun thing is getting together and having a conversation, but also knowing that the intent of the conversation is other people are join in and we could hit up even now, like you guys haven't done a new one in so long. Thought you guys are gonna mm-hmm. do like it's fun to know that you can hang out with your friends, have fun conversations, and you know people are also interested. So it's in its own way kind of like casual entertainment of a conversation yeah. that we would normally have anyway.
1: Yeah. And that's what I like about it too. And, you know, as much as I look, I would love to turn around and tell you, it's was like, Oh, I'm going to do like, uh, lament's going to do some big shows or, you know, maybe I'll do synthetic 16 again or something like that. It's probably it's, if it doesn't happen, it's totally fine. Like there's no, you know, nobody, you know, it'd be nice. If it did, I would love to tell you, Oh, we're going to get the seven inch released digitally. That's that could happen. I don't know that it never will or levitate released digitally. I don't know. You know, that would be a nice thing to do. But, you know, I'm content having the the podcast. I'm content going on Wrestling Soup every now and then. I'm content talking to people like you who, you know, are way more familiar than a lot of other people are about stuff that I'm going to talk about, you know. Um, you know, like we, I had cousin Joe on last year talking about like the park show, you know, a lot of people didn't know anything about stuff like that. People that live overseas and they're like, oh, that was really interesting. That guy was really fast. I don't know anything about hardcore, but that was really interesting. And of course, like, you know, to be honest with you, my family's so connected to this, like it's so hotel California at this point. Like, where are we going? You know, it's been 35 years. We're not, go- we're not going anywhere. <laughs> like, honestly, like what, where, where do you think my family's going? We're not going yeah. anywhere, you know? we're here where this is where we've, we've literally been around for like 35 years. Yeah. You know, we played and Florida
0: and hung out with Mark. He was there with your nephew. <laughs> oh, nephew. Get the fuck out of yeah, here. He brought his nephew. He brought your nephew. Oh, to Carmelo? our Yeah. To the, oh, to the shadow realm
1: show. Oh my God. what <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, and by the way, I have to say this to me, it's so it would be lovely to have like this massive family fan base, which I know, I know we have a lot of people that like the bands and that's great, but really when it comes down to the people that really connect, I think with my family are the Joe hardcores are the cousin Joe's are the, you know, the Rennie from Stark weather the Mike scores, you know, because people that we've known we've been around for so long and we've all been around this together, you know, at times where it was not so cool or it was not so popular, or maybe not everybody got along, and now as everybody's so much older, I think there's something very special to walk into a room and to see people like that at this age. And I know you're a little younger than me, but I'm sure you feel that way too. I mean, look, you have a lot of young people that are, you know, into what you do, and that's a big basis for how you're able to put on these shows and stuff like that. But I, I know, like when you walk in a room and see like these people that you. Liked or that you bought records from, and now you're doing business with them and they're your friends and you're talking on the phone and you're doing podcasts with them. That's got to feel fucking amazing, right? I mean, it has to feel
0: amazing. it's a surreality to sit there and go from because there's a hardcore part that you brought up earlier, like where you know the people because someone told you about the band, and then you know mm. the band so then you like the band. But then when you're w- like, you know I, I can I could call Siv a friend. you know we talk yeah. if we, wow, if we really? get on the phone, we talk for three hours. If you would have told sixteen-year-old Joe Hardcore that, I'd be like, "No fucking way!" Yeah, I just yeah, I literally just had bit half my tongue uh, all the way through at a CIV show because they covered sit around at home. Literally. Oh wow! So it's like a very surreal thing. But then, the service part of Hardcore never stops for me because even with the different people like Bob Wilson and all the new people that do shows like. I can't hang out my hat yet because it's still so much fun. And I, the right. one thing I'd like to touch on is what you said about traveling. I had so much fun just being in the van when Blacklisted my friends, were starting to really come up that it was mm. still exciting. There was a moment where I was saying the same thing. Like It wasn't about the bands that I was in. It was exciting to see this band pop yeah. off and to support your friends. And I think it's <laughs> another huge thing is the hardcore friendships. And obviously you could see it in so many different ways with the path of your family and everybody like, hardcore is its own Rolodex it's its own mm-hmm. white pages of like oh you know this guy you know that guy like, it, it's insane and throughout your entire story it's constantly just like just reaffirmed like growing up in hardcore you're still going to meet people from all these different areas and you know different bands and later on in life these people become right back in the in so many different ways that it's yeah. c- it, it it really is a nexus point that you don't even count on to be honest and then until you realize it like oh shit like you said you, um he said so many different times oh yeah and i from from this guy from this band and this guy from this band that's really the way this scene works man and that's why i wanted to have yeah. you on the show because you know uh lament i, I always want to is would you consider lament would you call it, would you consider i'll save you a lament song or a maximum penalty oh, song oh
1: no it's a maximum. no it's a maximum penalty song I, I it's a maximum penalty song and and it always will be a maximum penalty song you know what i mean it's just you know at the, that was a tricky time Uh, You know, I did everything I could to build our own song, like, you know, like to write my own shit, you know, from that. But it would have been silly as young people to not do those songs when they were so popular and people wanted to hear them. It would be silly. Would I make that choice now? Oh, God, no. Like, you know what I mean? I would never do that now. But at 19 in 90, you know, I when when there was, you know, no Internet, no streaming, no nothing. You know, it was just to hear it in a smattering sort of way you know, it was a different choice. I don't, I don't think any of us would make the choice now, uh, for that. And, you know, I, like I said, I, I'm just so grateful that that worked out the way it did, but I'm also so happy that MP got to have their run. You know what I mean? And like, you know, and I got to go do my thing and, you know, and I got to play with Joe a few more times and like, you know, you got to play the
0: anthrax with raw deal when they were killing time. Yeah. yeah, I
1: got to play the anthrax, with raw deal and killing time. I mean, like, yeah, you know, that, you know, like yeah, like you know, isn't that amazing? You know, I got to play the Anthrax a couple of times. I got to play, you know, uh, you know, some cool stuff, maybe not necessarily in the met, I got to play crazy country club. I got to play a more, You know, I consider that Shelter Life of Agony show on paper such a big thing for me because it was such a large crowd, it was such a step up crowd, even though it ended up in a very awful circumstance and, you know, things like that. But, you know, even like doing small little shows, like playing Castle Heights, you know, like Lament was, I think we were one of the first bands Kevin ever had played at Castle Heights. Yeah. Like, you know, know, so it's like, you know, it's nice to have these things. And, you know, I have no hard feelings towards anybody. I have no bitterness. I have, I don't have any problems with the human being at all. I'm so grateful to be a 52 year old guy that has this rich history um, and gets to talk to people like you and gets to see other people doing things so much bigger like i never could have dreamed like i remember the last time i saw you it was it was a long time i've never seen you since but last time i saw you at your own show was that mp year where they did it with judge and i just remember thinking like i never thought i would be standing here watching judge like in philly like you know that like never like i thought i'd never see judge again like you know i never thought i'd see judge Cause I had gotten, I had had a oral surgery when they did the black and blue ball. I couldn't go. I had an emergency oral surgery and I missed it. And I was so grateful. I was able to see that, but also to be there for MP, you know what I mean? And by the way, seven seconds were amazing that night. Killing time were fucking great that weekend. Like, you know what I mean? So, you know, um, did the, I think the, the show before that, the year before that they had played was another great year. I forget who played. There was a lot of people played, but it was just like to be able to see that, you know, like it was fucking awesome. You know, so to see things come full circle, to be standing there with Mark Curry, in you know my 40s, and Jamie Davis in my 40s at this is hardcore, watching like Judge and Maximum Penalty and Killing Time, you know how good that fucking felt for me in my life. I mean, it was amazing. I hadn't seen Mark in so long, I hadn't seen Jamie in so long, and like you know, my brother Mike was there. It was just like, you know, these moments are great. You know, these are really great moments, and I just hope younger people understand what had to happen for you to be able to put these shows on and for us to be able to stand there 25, 30 years later. I know it's very, it seems abstract to a 25 year old that's really into everything and goes to all these shows and has access to all this music, but a lot had to happen for a lot of things had to happen. And most of them were not very good for us to get to this point. And I just, my hope for it is, is that people understand that even though they might not agree or like a lot of things that happened before people with their politics or any of that other shit, that all of this allows this to be operate on this scale, allows you to have multi-day shows, to have black and blue, to have multi-day shows, to have, you know, tsunami fests and, and, uh, United blood fests and all this other stuff and these other shows and things I probably don't even know about that are awesome. Right. It's-
0: it's at a level where for this is hardcore half of what you just said is like the point of what I really get excited for. It's not just mm. the bands and the judges and the maximum penalties, but it's knowing that my friends who, when I was in my teens were in their early twenties, now they're in their forties and fifties. And you know, like hard Carl's kids staged over for the first time. at this is hardcore, you know, like, we're now as a family unit in this whole hardcore world, not to get too sticky. We're now bringing yeah. our kids to this and we're raising them in oh, this. Yeah. So it becomes important and it gives us, it gives me so much happiness and excitement to do that once a year for people. Because again, like whatever you want to say about anything that, That didn't work out in hardcore. It's like everything that hardcore has given me, and like you know, my union job and all my real great friends and like life experiences that I don't think I would have if I just went straight from high school right to the union. Like this, this thing's life changing, man. That's
1: true. It's completely. Yeah, I think about that sometimes too. It's like, what if I just like never went to that matinee, and I just got a job, and then I worked in finance. Like, what would my life be like? Like, you know, and I don't even know how to respond to that because it just didn't work out that way. And I'm really grateful for the times we had back in the late 80s, you know, meeting people like Rennie from Starkweather, like Jonah and Craig and the dudes from Only Living Witness and fucking Sub-Zero and Demise and fucking Maraud. Like, I am so grateful. Like, to me, like that... I, to see other people react to those bands like in a modern way and really respond to them and the success like Mark, my brother had and Mike has had and Kevin's had it's to me. That's great. Like, you know that I, what could I be upset about? Right. You know uh, I was there, I was a part of it with everybody else. Even at times when I don't feel like I was a part of it, the reality is that we were there. We were a part of it. We did do these things. We did sort of, you know, uh, have this, good time when none of this things that exist today with streaming or accessibility or the popularity of it, that's for fuck sure. You know, um, some of the most fun I've ever had, I'm sure you'll say this forever. Some of the most fun you probably had with some of the least populated shows. And it's just because of who was there, not how many people were there. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's, that's important to me. And that's, to me, that's a lesson I learned. I'm very humbled by, you know, the success I was able to get out of, um, you know, podcasting through the wrestling thing. And I recognize that like, you know, that's to most people, they don't give a shit about that, but you know, the, 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 the fact that I was able to parlay all that from music, from, you know, just sort of restarting my life a few times, you know, uh, divorces and, you know, losing people and losing my dad and losing my good friends. And, you know, the fact that I'm able here to talk to you about this tonight right now, it, to me is is worth its weight in gold you know and the fact that you you're somebody who is always a student of this and is so familiar with a lot of these people and a lot of these bands and a lot of these little scenes that broke out and that is somehow put you in a position where you put on like one of the biggest shows in the in the Northeast every year that's destination viewing. I mean, to me, it's like, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I, you know, I, everything worked out exactly fine, you know, and I'm I'm super grateful for it, man. And I, and I just want to say, honestly, and I said this to you privately, as you know, you know, I'm very grateful for, you know, the things that you've done for not even just my family, but also my extended family, you know, the people that we're friends with, you know, and, you know, because a lot of these things would not be happening if it wasn't for people like you and people like, you know, cousin Joe. And a lot of people who don't get that kind of recognition, as you know, who put in a lot of work. And this is like a labor of love and it's an extended community. And like, you know, my God, like if you were who you were in the early 90s, can you imagine what, what the, like the sea change for a lot of bands that you, you know, if you had this ability to do these kind of shows in the mid 90s and the early 90s? Holy shit. I, mean, oh, like, I think you about know, it
0: all the time. Like
1: if I had the full
0: spectrum of like pick a band and make it happen. What's interesting. I yeah. don't know if you know this. I know. Yeah. Wrap I mean, up it's soon. wild, you know, all so, of the, you know, all the bands that we just talked about, oh, I think the internet couldn't be up. more popular right now than ever before.
1: Mm. Yeah. I'm just really grateful. And I just want to Can say, I me? thank you very much for all the, uh, You know, the stuff you've done for all of us. I I think our internet is going to die here. So I just want to try to wrap up with you.
0: No, dude, thank you you so much. Um, Yeah, I can hear you. Um, Thank you for so much. I know you were having some difficulties with the connection. Um, I'm going to tag your podcasts so people can check you guys out. And I'll put your social media up. John, thank you for everything you did. Thank you for everything that you did. Thank you for the positivity. And I, I love the look back right now kids today who are 20 years old are obsessed with Marauder and Demise and yeah. all the things we just talked about and it's such a surreal thing to think about kids who are now obsessed about things that happened 30 something years ago and I thank you for playing thank you for playing your role in that special time for hardcore
1: well i appreciate it and thank you for keeping the the memory of stuff like that alive and acknowledging it you know i know sometimes for a lot of people you know there's always some bitterness in the scene there's a lot of politics to it but You know, at the end of the day, you know, uh, you know, we're still sort of a fringe subculture, you know, on the in the music world. And, you know, uh, it's important that people kind of, you know, do that. You know what I mean? And I appreciate it. And, you know, I I have a tremendous amount of respect for you and a lot of appreciation. And.
0: uh... Definitely, brother, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that one. Like I said, John's a great guy. He could talk forever. He's on two separate podcasts. Links are going to be on the com. Yeah, I don't know if you guys actually, actually ever go to the .com, but I know you can even go through the Spotify cuz we all our links are on Spotify and all our links are on the .com. Um again, I love conversations about old shit and people that came through and seen things before I got there and their perspective and I love that I love that there's never an un, never ending amount of different paths That come through Hardcore. And John Scodato adds another perspective to a lot of cool shit that was happening in New York Hardcore. From the middle of the 80s into the middle of 2000s. It's fucking great. So, hope you enjoyed that one again. One more time. um, This is airing on June 2nd. So, there's two shows. You can go to Brain Tourniquet, Killing Pace, Sinister Feeling, Scarab. Philly Mocha, or you can go to Sansuga Bog, Jarhead, Fertilizer, Stab, and Weeping at Underground Arts. Go to all of our shows, PhillyHCShows.com dot com, PhillyHCShows at Instagram and Twitter. Um, and yeah, thank you for supporting the podcast. Thank you for supporting Philadelphia Hardcore. We got tons of shows. Go to the dot-coms. And if you want to help out, you can go to get the tickets for the Kev1 Bulldoze benefit. We have them up live now. Or you can send money to the GoFundMe, which will also be linked in the show notes. And check out Vulture Raid. They're fucking fantastic. And I don't want to jinx the kids, knock on wood. But, you know, maybe they'll end up being the next fucking Rancid. Who knows? So, thank you. Take care.